Welcome back to another edition of the Rhino Wrestling Review. I am your host, Dan Rhino. Happy New Year, everybody. Brought to you by our friends at ProWrestling.com. Of course, very special episode of the Rhino Wrestling Review as I'm going to be joined by Doug E. Wrestling from the STF Underground Podcast and ProWrestling.com. And Doug and I are going to take a look at... The first five years of the past decade in pro wrestling as we tackle years 2010 to 2014. Long show and quite an undertaking. So very pleased that I had Dougie Wrestling along for the ride with me. And I hope you guys enjoy the look back at the first five years of the past decade in the world of pro wrestling. Welcoming back to the Rhino Wrestling Review for the second time the host of the STF Underground Podcast and frequent contributor to ProWrestling.com. It's Doug E. Wrestling. What's up, man? What's up, man? I feel like some people are going to hate hearing me on your show because I feel like everyone's going to just think that I'm the woman hater of, of <laughs> ProWrestling.com. You've kind of become like a celebrity on, on our show. We reference you all the time whenever we talk about women's wrestling and whenever we talk about Natalia uh, specifically. So hey, I, I praised her last week. Yeah, you did, and I tweeted that out because I was I was very shocked that. Uh, uh, so was I. But Doug know. seems to be turning the corner on Natalia. He's kind of becoming like a big Natalia fan, which is kind of a <laughs> big deal. <laughs> baby steps, baby for, steps. For though. the record, I don't hate women's wrestling. I hate bad women's wrestling. I, I you know, I, and I love good women's wrestling. The the women's war games match was all right. Um, you know, I definitely liked. Um, a lot of the things that Chris Statlander has been on for AEW recently, um, she's been she's actually been uh, changing my mind on her because I wasn't a big ban- a fan of her. You know, yeah, I remember you. Season. I remember you saying that because she was uh, like number one hundred in the PWI this year, and I, assuming she's going to skyrocket up after the push AEW's uh, given her. But I kind of asked you about her at the time, and you weren't you know too high on her at the time. But it seems like maybe she's changing your mind a little bit you're it's a new it's it's 2020 i I think it's just because i saw her in only intergender matches here in the chicagoland area um so uh, you know it just wasn't not that i don't like intergender matches or anything like that but i wanted to see her thrive in women's matches because because i do think that she's talented and that's what she's been doing at aew so i'm really glad about that you know awesome well, we're going to do, we've got a special episode here today, something that we've never had the opportunity to do. We recently ended the 2010s, is that is that what we say, the 10s, the... The, the, uh, the 2010s, or... The 20, I don't know what they call it. I'm, I'm glad that we're in the, like, the 20s, the and teens. then we'll be in the 30s soon. It'll be, a, it'll be a lot easier to say. But we just ended the 10s, or the 2010s, and we're going to look back at the first five years of the 2010s, and kind of talk about what's going on with the companies at the time, that being New Japan, TNA, Ring of Honor, uh, SmackDown and Raw. And then uh, I even, I kind of forgot, neglected to talk, even talk about NXT in the original note. So I uh, threw some NXT stuff on there that I'll throw at you here at the end Ooh, of I can't wait. Uh, each segment. But, like I said, uh, it was kind of a, a thing I've wanted to do for a while. And then when I kind of started undertaking the whole thing... I realized how big of a project it was going to be, so I decided to break it up into a couple episodes here. So you and I are going to yeah, tackle you know, 2010 to 2014. I got. I have to say kudos because 
you know, and taking a look at, you know, everything that you put together here, um, it, it has been a big project and it, and it shows why your show is so much better than mine <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, you, you put in a lot of work here. So kudos to this man. And, and I'm really excited to be a part of this. And uh, on top of that, when you, when you asked me, I was thinking like, man, I, I don't know if I should tell him that I stopped watching wrestling and like. 2005 to like 2011 yeah. See, because it's just so bad. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because on the first time you were on the show, you said that you had kind of fallen out, and then the CM Punk thing kind of brought you back in, right? Yeah, yeah, which we were definitely going to cover, and, mm-hmm. and um, but you know, I, I'm I consider myself a historian, even though I was out for quite a bit of time in the wrestling world. A lot of the things that that we are going to talk about are things that I'm very very familiar with. Gone back, did my homework did my studies so to speak you know even before uh today but some of these things reminded me why i stopped watching wrestling and that was that was uh and that's why i'm i'm drinking right now is because (laughs) uh, i'm looking back at at some of the the events that we're going to talk about some of it was kind of surprisingly better than i than i remembered i guess i guess i kind of crap on wrestling a lot you know because nobody hates wrestling more than pro wrestling fans Oh, yeah, for sure. My brother always says, says the same thing about Star Wars. Nobody hates Star Wars more than, than Star Wars fans. But <laughs> when I'm going back on this, and I was, you know, kind of, I crap on a lot of the, the stuff that's going on now. I looked back, and there was a lot of good things going on. And then I looked back, and there was a lot of garbage going on, too. So Well, you know, taking a look at the early 2010s, especially, you know, 2010 in general, reminds me a lot of right now, where... You know, taking a look at the WWE, I, I watch and then I feel just sad that I'm watching. Mm-hmm. But then the, there's these moments that just kind of bring me back that make me remember of like why I'm a wrestling fan. And no, I'm not talking about Big Show coming back on Raw. I'm talking about a lot of <laughs> yes. moments that just <laughs> he's back, baby. You oh asked God. for it. He's back. <laughs> Literally was just talking <laughs> about him on my last episode. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I mean. Taking a look at this, there are a lot of really great moments, you know, um, that especially taking a look at 2010, I'm seeing a lot of really good things that I've gone back and and just been like, man, that was really really fantastic. But a lot of things that also make me want to cry looking at. So sure. uh, I'm excited to get into it. Well, speaking of uh, things that make you want to cry, 2010 Billboard Song of the Year was TikTok by Kesha. So oh my God. <laughs> what's your what's your favorite is that is that your favorite Kesha song or do you have a one that you like better than that? I know you're a big fan. I, I have a limited knowledge of Kesha <laughs> and I think it's been sparked more by my wife and, and I do remember TikTok is that the, like that she also does like that selfie song too, right? I, you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, listening I, I think of Kesha and I think of she just kind of sing talks. So right. that, that's kind of why, you know, I never really got into Kesha, but more power to those that want to have their ears bleed for, you know, sure. a daily basis. And she's got a dollar sign in her name, so. Yeah, yeah, so that means she's money. And uh, all of these uh, Oscar winners for each year, too, I don't think I've seen any of them. Uh, you seen The Hurt Locker? I did see The Hurt Locker. I know it was heavily, heavily acclaimed. Uh, I... You know, when I watched it, I wasn't that impressed. I feel like it just kind of dragged this movie. I see why a lot of people liked it, people that like um, war-based movies. And that's great. It just wasn't 
the movie for me. Yep. Well, that was the Oscar winner back in 2010. So let's start off with uh, New Japan. They just had a big weekend, uh, their big Wrestle Kingdom over two days uh, weekend. I assume you got you're gonna talk a little bit about that on your show this week. Oh, absolutely! It's an, an amazing, amazing show. I, I can't wait to talk about it. Um, you know, and, and I want to get your thoughts too on that show, just as a little mini uh, um, review here, because for me, um, I, the one thing that I noticed, and uh, I was listening a lot to Busted Open Radio over the last couple of days, and, and they kind of put it in the best words, um, just thinking to myself that this was the epitome of what wrestling is when it's the opposite of sports entertainment, and, and that's definitely for me. Uh, one of the reasons I like watching Wrestle Kingdom in New Japan. Yeah, Wrestle Kingdom is is always the New Japan show that I don't miss every year. Every once in a while, there'll be one that kind of sparks my interest. Uh, like you know, if Jericho's on there or Moxley or uh, the uh, uh, the tournaments they do every year are always uh, must watch. But you know, Wrestle Kingdom is something that I feel like I can. They do such a good job of catching you up on what's been going on with the little video packages and things like that. And I love the fact that it was spread out over two days this time because it didn't feel as draining. And I wonder if that's, uh, you know, they've rumored doing that with WrestleMania before. I don't think they'll ever actually do that. But when you think about that, they had, what, 40 or 35,000 each night. For the or something like that, uh, seventy. I think it was forty their first night and thirty the second night. Yeah, I mean that's if if Vince can get you know fill up the house twice, then he might be inclined to do that. You never know. I mean, do you think that WrestleMania would do well over you know especially for the length of the, the show, you know the seven hours each and in uh, big city or whatever? Do you, do you think that they would be able to do that um, two nights in a row for? You know, for eighty thousand fans or whatever it might be. I don't know, man. I I went one night and I was just I was exhausted by the end of the night, and it it sucked because by the time the main event gets around, the crowd is just gone. They're just drained. Nobody cares. Yeah. Right. And and for, that's the match you want to see the most, but you just have nothing left. You have you have no energy. You have no voice. You it's. Uh, you know, I feel like this is a trap to, t- to say that I didn't care about the women's triple threat last year, <laughs> which I liked. Which I liked. <laughs> well, it's because Natalia wasn't in it. <laughs> exactly, but, uh, exactly. Back in 2010, we were only at Wrestle Kingdom 4, and Nakamura, somebody who would end up coming over to NXT and then end up having mixed success on the main roster in WWE, Nakamura was in a big spot uh, defending the... Uh, or he actually retained the IWGP Heavyweight Championship against uh, Takayama on that card. So I think it's going to be kind of interesting when we talk when we talk about New Japan from 2010 to 2014. There's going to be a lot of names popping up on these Wrestle Kingdom cards, and then in New Japan storylines when we get into the Bullet Club a little later. That's going to have a lot of impact on what we're seeing on AEW and on WWE right now. It all kind of started over there in Japan. Well, a lot of these guys, you know, people like Nakamura, obviously, they've made their names over there. And Shinsuke Nakamura, the king of strong style at the time uh, over in New Japan, was at the height of what, you know, what New Japan was. And really is one of the guys that brought back New Japan into a little bit of stardom. Obviously, it's his notoriety over there that is the reason that he got brought over to WWE. Um, But it's kind of interesting to think about. Um, He... 
retain the championship, the, the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, at Japan's biggest show, at Wrestle Kingdom, and he hasn't even had it here in the U.S. since he's been here. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a very weird journey for Shinsuke as he's come from the height of heights over in uh, New Japan to all these success that he had in NXT to where he's at now, which is if you had the if you put a gun to my head and told, asked me what Shinsuke Nakamura, who he was feuding with right now, I, I don't know. Is he still Intercontinental Champion? Has he still got that belt? I think he is. That new belt? I, I think he does. I mean, the blue brand's not one that I frequent anymore. I mean, it's one that uh, I go back and watch clips because, you know, since it's come on Fox, it's way more, uh, it feels more like the sports entertainment show mm-hmm. and, and you know, Shinsuke, I think the last time that I saw it, he was still with Sami Zayn. I'm not sure if that's still a thing. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the, the how the mighty have fallen, huh? Yeah, it's been it's been a very, very strange journey. Uh, let's talk about TNA. Are you a big... Uh, do you watch Impact regularly today? Uh, I keep track of it. It's not a channel that I get. I, I do definitely like Impact Wrestling, and, you know, I, I tend to keep close with a lot of Impact Wrestling stars, uh, that are on the current roster, um, so that's definitely why I like to keep track of it at this point. Guys like the Rascals, guys mm-hmm. like uh, I guess he's cousin Jake there, Sammy Callahan, all sure. those guys are, are just people that that I have gotten to know over the years. Um, so I definitely like to know uh, what they're up to. Uh, I definitely did attend Bound for Glory this past or this uh, just a couple months ago, mm-hmm. uh, and and I attend Impact shows whenever they're around. Um, but I definitely wish it was on a more prominent channel that I got, even though. Uh, moving over to um, now they're on and Access. I know they just made their move to Access exactly yeah. um, that even though that, that's a big step up from the Pursuit channel or whatever it was on before mm-hmm. um, so you know hopefully they continue moving in the right direction I, I'd love for them to get a uh, maybe a deal or a package on Fight TV moving forward yeah I think so too because I don't get access on my uh, service either unless I upgrade to several higher levels or, or how, however it works and I and I appreciate the fact that they have it on Twitch as well but I wish there was some kind of like on-demand thing that that, that, that it could access because I, I just unless I'm sitting in front of a streaming device at that exact time I can't watch it you know, I, you know it, it's I think it's funny that you know we're, we're talking impact right now and Seeing from you know some of the notes of what they were when they were TNA mm-hmm. uh, back then to Impact now, a lot of people, you know, when they hear about Impact Wrestling, they automatically think TNA and don't really know the, some of the things going on with the brand. Um, and, and you know, we definitely keep track of it, but there are a lot of really great things going on right now, specifically uh, with w- one of the best women's divisions that are. In, on any roster um, not to mention that a lot of the high flyers Rob Van Dam is still there I mean there's mm-hmm. just a lot of really great things going on right now and speaking of Rob, Rob Van Dam he would show up for the first time in Impact Wrestling in 2010 when we're talking what we're talking about right now and 2010 was a really man it was a weird year for TNA they decided they had brought in <laughs> in 2009 they had brought in Hulk Hogan they had brought in Eric Bischoff and they were making a big play to not just be a uh, a force in pro wrestling but actually challenge the wwe and that's something aew has not gone out on a limb and said that they're going to do they know that they can't just 
take down the WWE. The machine is just too, uh, it's too big right now. But they know that they can cut their own niche in the pro wrestling community. And that's something that TNA was not thinking back then. They were thinking that we can go head-to-head with WWE, we can challenge them, we can get the bigger stars, and we can eventually you know, have another Monday Night War. Instead of doing what AEW is doing now and home-growing a lot of talent, something that TNA actually grew in doing, developing guys like AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, Christopher Daniels, guys like that, they decided to be WCW, or what a lot of people call WWE Light, and essentially had all those guys, familiar faces, sure. Um, but, you know, I, I see here that, that you noted the viewers. Um, their height is 2.5 million viewers. The the funny thing about that is their their height is now what WWE is doing on a weekly mm-hmm. basis. So oh, how the, how the winds have changed <laughs> over the years. Yeah. You know, t- um, so two and a half million is a great number now mm-hmm. for WWE. Yeah, uh, while it was you know not not fantastic for TNA at the time. Yeah, AEW would kill for 2.5 million viewers right now. NXT would kill for 2.5 million. I don't even know if the SmackDown even get 2.5 million. I think they're drawing like right around the low twos every single week, which, which is insane being on on uh, you know just uh, regular network cable or network uh, station, but. You know, Answer T- is bringing the big show. <laughs> well, TNA, like I said, brought in Hulk Hogan on on January fourth. They decided it was going to be a, uh, at the time a one time thing. They were going to have a big show. They were going to go live. They were going to go head to head with Monday Night Raw. And like you said, they got 2.5 million viewers, which was a huge number. That was the biggest number they had ever drawn at the time, and a huge number compared to what we see today. Hulk Hogan was on the show, Ric Flair was on the show, Jeff Hardy was a surprise on the show, Eric Bischoff, and of course your favorite, the Nasty Boys. <laughs> what was Hogan at the time? Seventy or eighty? What was I, he doing at that time? I believe he was in I believe he was seventy, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he, was, he might have had like a strand of hair there yeah, or something like that. Yeah, he, he was probably like in his mid fifties and he could barely walk at, at that point though. Uh, he ended up wrestling a couple matches in TNA as kinda, you know, like spotlight things where he was trying to get over abyss and you know gave abyss his hall of fame ring and a a bunch just a bunch of horse shit man uh it's probably a good thing you weren't watching wrestling at the time you know i've seen abyss several times live and every single time i might be his biggest booer uh (laughs) to the point where he just always gets in my face and there's there's very few guys that i like seeing less than abyss well raw Despite the fact that a lot of the times they were not even acknowledging the existence of TNA, they saw this as a as a challenge and decided they were going to pull out the big guns. And that same night, they brought back Bret Hart for the first his first Raw appearance since the Montreal Screwjob and had an in-ring confrontation with Shawn Michaels. They got 5.6 million viewers, another number that Raw would kill for today. I'd like to bury the hatchet and <laughs> shake hands right now. <laughs> and Bret Hart would actually stick around for a little while and would have a match at WrestleMania against Vince McMahon. And it was it was a very strange time in the in the world of pro wrestling. I still blame Bill Goldberg for this whole thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so TNA would end up moving permanently to Monday nights in March. They had a it was ended up being a 
really bad mistake. The ratings ended up tanking, and two months later they were back on uh, Thursdays. And another thing that was different back in 2010 is TNA was running monthly pay-per-views, whereas today I think they only run three or four a year. Is that right? Yeah, I, I know that they really run sporadically, and they're kind of based on announcement. They're not like any, any set schedule or anything like, like that, um, which you know is fine. Um, they they still do Bound for Glory every single year. Um, they they still have a, a lot of really great things that they're doing. But the monthly pay per views, um, I, I remember those days, and I remember just thinking, do I want to spend? This is pre network days, mind you. So there, there's no nine ninety nine for pay per views. You're spending if you're watching. Both shows, you're dropping a hundred bucks a month. Yeah, it's it was. Uh, I can't even imagine. I I can't even fathom how much money we spent back in those days on on pay per views. And now I guess it's it's a little better because you don't feel as bad if the show is crappy. And you're only paying nine ninety five. But on the on the other hand, you know it's uh, you know most of the shows don't feel as big as they used to. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, I always used to pride myself that from about 2012 to, I think, like 2017, I never missed a WWE pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. And then during those days pre-network, I, I started to think to myself, how much dumb money did I spend on dumb shows at mm-hmm. that time when I was paying 50, 60 bucks a month? Uh, I'm glad I, I wasn't doing it during that uh, TNA monthly pay-per-view yeah. run. And TNA is not doing great numbers with their pay-per-views. Uh, they are bringing in more... WWE retreads like Ken Anderson, they bring in Shannon Moore, Sean Morley, the former Val Venus, one of your favorites, <laughs> uh, and then they bring in RVD, who actually has is actually pretty compelling on uh, probably one of the more compelling characters that they bring in. They do a Hardcore Justice pay-per-view, which was an all East, all ECW originals show, and it had you know Tommy Dreamer on there, it had Sabu, it had RVD, it had just incredible it uh it was very reminiscent of the one night stand shows that wwe had had some success with i love the original one night stand shows when 2005 2006 Um, those are some of my favorite pay-per-views maybe of all time uh especially seeing a lot of the things uh, like when Rob Van defended the or um, challenged uh, John Cena for that uh, mm-hmm. WWE Championship when he cashed in the Money in the Bank, that was a great moment. Edge, of course, you know, <laughs> uh, interfering, spearing John Cena, allowing RVD to be uh, crown champion. Um, this, of course, was a big retread of that, and and to me, uh, just wasn't nearly as much of a thing like that was as good as those one night stand pay per views. But you mentioned something really interesting that Rob Van Dam was one of the more bigger highlights of what TNA was doing at the time and I think that it's because Rob Van Dam really is a pioneer of what wrestling is today you know you you take a look at something that TNA was good at is developing a lot of those high flyers and really being the pioneer towards guys like the Young Bucks guys like you know SCU um, the Rascals and Rob Van Dam was again the pioneer of that Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the gimmick that he's doing right now on Impact is you know, he's saying that uh, he's. I think he's feuding with Brian Cage now and saying, uh, you know, I I should be able to beat you. You you do all of my moves. You know, you got them all from me. So I I to this day RVD is uh, you know still a compelling character. Uh, AJ Styles is actually the TNA Heavyweight Champ, and they tried to put him. I didn't have it in the notes here, but 
as I'm talking, I'm remembering that they tried to put him with Ric Flair as his manager. They put AJ in like the Ric Flair robes with the tat with the oh, feathers and everything. Oh my god! Like that's just total opposite of what AJ is when he's at his coolest. Is you know put, trying to make him a, a Ric, Ric Flair, uh, you know poor man's Ric Flair. It, it's kind of funny to think about now because at, at that time. Um, you know, AJ, it's hard to even consider when AJ was at his prime because a lot of people would even say he's still in the prime or winning down from it right now. Yeah. Um, AJ probably at the time was entering his prime, and, you know, that could have been a serious derailment from for him yeah. uh, considering how homegrown he was. I mean, it, it's really a blessing for him that shortly thereafter he left for New Japan. Uh, Jeff Hardy would, or actually RVD would defeat AJ for the title and then had to vacate it due to injury, and Jeff Hardy would end up winning the vacant title. So we've got, we're bringing in uh, guys from former WWE and taking the title off our homegrown guy and putting it on these guys that we're bringing in because we're trying to, we think that that's what's going to be to boost the numbers. Uh, Do you think Jeff Hardy actually remembers winning the title there? Man, uh, we're gonna get we're gonna get into some Jeff Hardy stuff. I think it's in uh, I don't remember if it's in 2011 or 2012. Yeah, but there is yep. a ridiculous moment on a pay per view where Jeff Hardy can just barely walk to the ring because he's so intoxicated, and I just remember Bischoff running down to the ring screaming something to. You know, make the get the match over with quickly, or it was such a surreal moment. It just kind of spoke to the the chaos that was going on in in TNA at the time, at the time, and the dysfunction that they're just now kind of recovering from, as they've got uh, Scott Demore and Don Callis kind of riding the ship the last couple of years. That was just such a dysfunctional company for so long. You know, do you look back and blame guys like Hogan and Bischoff for those times, or are you a uh, I blame Dixie Carter camp? Because right now, um, being in, in the media and some of their shows, they treat the media fantastically. You know, when they they are really only second to what I've experienced with AEW with the media, uh, with how they treat people. I mean, they give they gave us personal tables, all that stuff. Um, so they've been definitely riding the ship there. But um, at the time, again, are you? More of it was Dixie Carter's fault or the yeah. uh, NWO regime. I, I think uh, I think Dixie a little bit more, just because from everything that I've heard of anybody that's worked with her, it tells me that she is just the nicest person in the world, but has no knowledge of how to run a, a pro wrestling company. Yeah, you know that's that's what I've heard too. I, I feel like nobody has any bad words to say about her as a person you know right. we've heard um kurt angle talk about her uh at length and, and his relationship with her um even guys like uh vince russo who i know that you love mm-hmm. uh, you know he speaks well of her as a person but as a business person sure. maybe just not the uh best in in the pro wrestling biz and i think i think the hogan thing just kind of accentuated those issues because dixie just bowed at the altar of of Hogan and gave him whatever he wanted and you know I don't know if he's the guy that you want to have a burgeoning company 
you know, be the head of a burgeoning company that in 2010, you know, a great ambassador, I think, when he's not using the N word, uh, <laughs> a great ambassador for, for the sport of professional wrestling and a guy that, you know, you could send out to the Silver know, Dome. Yeah, the Silver Dome. Yeah, down in New Orleans. <laughs> uh, I, I I always heard that Bischoff talk about these uh, like conventions, like the network, the uh, TV conventions and things like that, where they would uh, go out and try to recruit uh, advertisers for for different brands and for different shows. And they would always send Hogan out to that because everybody wanted to go see. Everybody knew Hogan. Everybody wanted to go see Hulk Hogan. He brings attention to your brand and to your company, but. The fact that he was putting the Nasty Boys out there and putting his buddy Bubba the Love Sponge on TV, and it was <laughs> it was a lot of crap. It was just a lot of crap. And I th- I would say Dixie because she was around more, but I just think having Hogan there just kind of upped everything to the, the tenth degree. I mean, as a wrestling fan how do you not listen to hulk hogan kind of thing you know it's almost i can see where her predicament is but at the same time hogan is notorious especially with the nwo days and wcw for protecting himself and, and protecting his image and that his image comes first and that he's not that willing to lay down for the sake of the company or the storyline um so in that sense he was definitely the person that uh, or shouldn't have been the person to carry that torch. Sure. Uh, talk about a company that is actually coming up in 2010. Talking about Ring of Honor. And a lot of these names that we're going to mention here that were prominent in Ring of Honor in 2010 are some of the stars that we're seeing on Raw and SmackDown each week. Tyler Black, a.k.a. Seth Rollins, is the Ring of Honor champ for much of 2010. Roderick Strong, your current North American champ on NXT, defeats Tyler Black in September to win uh, the Ring of Honor title. And that was actually Tyler Black's last match in Ring of Honor before he was signed with WWE, 2010. Uh, We've got El Generico, also uh, known as Sami Zayn today, defeated Kevin Steen in September, a.k.a. Kevin Owens, in a mask versus uh, Steen leaving Ring of Honor match. And Kevin Steen's gone for a long time from Ring of Honor for over six months. Ring of Honor not wanting to meet his contract demands and the fact that Jim Cornette, who was the Ring of Honor booker at the time, was never a big Kevin Steen or El Generico fan. Oh, he's so fat! (laughs) Now, I know they call you the... uh... Jim Cornette, Jim Cornette of, Jr. Uh, podcast. Yeah, I don't. I don't <laughs> but, say as as much racist stuff though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's pretty close, but no. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's close. It's like one A and one B, but yeah. I mean, I I, I I can see the fans can't, but you got to take that hood off. No, no, just that's kidding. right. That's right. Um, <laughs> but you know, do you think that Jim Cornette looks at this and? you know, looks back on history and kicks himself? Or do you think that he's just always right in his mind and still thinks guys like Kevin Steen are, I think at the time he was talking about how too fat that he is mm-hmm. for TV and, yeah. or not liking a guy like Sami Zayn El Generico. Uh, you know, I feel like he's never a guy that's going to admit that he's wrong, but you can't argue the results. I mean, Kevin Owens Regardless of anything that he's in over the last five years, everything that he's done has really mattered, regardless of, you know, being at the top of the card or not. Yep. And, 
you know, this was 2010. You look, it's 2020 now. The fact that everything Kevin Owens does as a babyface or a heel is compelling. And we were in the crowd in Chicago when he was the surprise uh, member of Team Champa. One of the loudest pops I'd ever heard in uh, yeah. live in pro wrestling. That that was an incredible moment. You know, I, I know that we were talking about it a lot going into it, and we we're just like, you know, I wonder what it would be if Kevin Owens and actually. Uh, Fox Narayan, my, my co-host on STF Underground, brought it up, and I was like, uh, I don't know if that would happen, but lo and behold, it, it did, and you know, the uh, the uh, it was deafening to say the least. Yep. So let's get into what Raw, Raw and SmackDown were doing in 2010. Raw, we this, have to. We have to. We we kind of have <laughs> to because we got to talk about this. Uh, were you familiar with the guest host, guest GM thing they were doing? Yes, unfortunately. So. In an, in an attempt to – and this was in this around the same the time. time as like the Mike Adamley era, right? Yes, and we're Mc, Vince McMahon's giving away money, just just giving away money to people. Million-dollar phone calls yeah. that failed. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, was, it was a weird time to try to they, – they were still hanging on to the, the thought that they could get the ratings back to where they were in the Monday Night Wars. And so many things had changed in the business. Those days were just gone. But – we had guys. We had like William Shatner hosting. We had Cheech and Chong. Some of them were kind of cool, like Mike Tyson. That that episode I remember being pretty cool. You've probably seen the clips of like the Bob Barker Chris Jericho interaction, which is kind of funny. But you know, a lot of it was just trying to drum up ratings, and it didn't work. I don't know how much they were paying these guys to come on, but most of the time, it the ratings just kind of stayed the same. I mean, they still do these kind of things, not necessarily the guest host, but with, with celebrities just to get ratings. I mean, what was the last celebrity that you cared about that they brought in? I mean, I, I think for me, the only one I ever really cared about was Stephen Amell, who ended up mm-hmm. just being a wrestling fan in general and, and wrestling at, at All In. Uh, but other than that, I can't recall one that I was like, wow, that's going to be really cool. Yeah, and it's it's better when they are wrestling fans too and you could tell that when when some of these uh, guest hosts would come on some of them were just thought it the whole thing was just a big joke and that's not that we don't appreciate that as wrestling fans you know we 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 know that it's scripted we know that it's predetermined but we don't like being laughed at uh, to our face by somebody who's coming into our realm so to speak so you didn't like the whole Snooky thing, is what you're telling me. I did not. I I I know you're a big <laughs> Snooky fan. Huge. Uh, you're, you're a big JWoww fan. You've got oh, uh, uh, the situation. He had like some workout tapes. I know you got all those. Uh, <laughs> he went to, he went to jail though for recently, if I if I remember correctly. I don't know if he's. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> and I think they're probably all from that Jersey Shore show. So yep, they sure are. Uh, like we uh, mentioned, we alluded, alluded to earlier, Bret Hart returned around this time and would actually have a match, uh, a lumberjack match at WrestleMania against Vince McMahon, and would even win the United States title later that year, which was, I think, just kind of a. You know, we appreciate you, Brett. Thanks for everything you did. He here's uh, the U.S. title, and then he had, went and uh, he never defended it. He had just ended up vacating it. But it was it was a it was cool to see Brett back. But he just wasn't the same after Goldberg kicked his head into the third row in WCW. 
I mean, he tried to recreate it this past year at the Hall of Fame with one of those lumberjacks getting in the ring, obviously. Yep. But <laughs> looking back, you know, this wasn't something that I was a big fan of uh, with Bret Hart returning. Like, like you mentioned, he just wasn't the same. It wasn't something for me that it's it's like the undertaker when i see him now it just reminds me that he's old and that's when i see bret hart it just reminded me that he's old and he that he shouldn't be there and i understand that they think when vince does things like this uh you know going against bret hart that they think it's a spectacle or they think that it's something that people will be talking about but it's not for the right reasons and it more so tarnishes the return for me it's the same idea as when Shawn Michaels return in Saudi Arabia that with I no just hair. From- yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's what killed it for me was the fact that when they were setting up that match and he got uh, choke slammed on on Raw and his hat came off and I said, oh no, where's where does hair go? <laughs> it I I was very upset. I was very upset yeah. about that. the The big storyline kind of going throughout the whole year was the rise of the Nexus, and this kind of ties in with. NXT and NXT was actually formed in 2010, but it is not the NXT that we know of today. Uh, in 2010, the ECW brand had been dissolved, and ECW was on the Sci-Fi Network at the time. So they put this new NXT in the Sci-Fi slot and featured some of the members of the Florida Championship Wrestling roster, which was kind of the developmental at the time for WWE. But do you remember the original NXT, the reality-based competition where they were, like, carrying beer kegs and shit like that? It was like a poor man's (laughs) tough enough. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I, I definitely do remember that and have gone back to watch everything with the Nexus and NXT. Uh, It wasn't entertaining to me. I feel like WWE has shoved it down down our throats that uh, Daniel Bryan was the Miz's rookie coming up through all these things. Um, and, and I know that there were a lot of names that came out of there, mm-hmm. uh, guys that are obviously huge now, like Skip Sheffield, a.k.a. Ryback. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, guys He's like, Slater. He's got kids. Yeah, he, he does have kids. Yeah, uh, obviously Daniel Bryan to me is, is the one out of there that became the most uh, – it had the biggest benefit. But also Wade Barrett uh, is the guy that was one of the more notable guys and – it had such momentum coming out of there, especially in the Nexus and everything, and how they really tanked that was just a shame, considering he was he was awesome, and he consistently had resurgences, like being uh, King of the Ring or Bad News Barrett. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Wade Barrett actually leads that NXT class, and like I said, it was like a kind of quasi-reality show, but it, it was a quasi-competition, but... You know, when you when you have some of the points coming from matches and the matches are predetermined, it's not exactly a legitimate competition. Uh, they did have, you know, immunity passes and promo contest, and Michael Cole turned heel for some reason Ugh, gross. <laughs> during that. Uh, but uh, like I said, the rise of the Nexus. Wade Barrett leads that NXT class. Uh, Justin Gabriel, Heath Slater, Ryback, Daniel Bryan, uh, David Otunga, your boy, was in that group. <laughs> Chicago uh, guy. And then uh, Daniel Bryan actually, when when the NXT group kind of comes together and forms this group called Nexus, they kind of invade WWE and they have this big end, end of Raw scene where they take out all the big stars and they take out the announce team and everything. 
And Daniel Bryan legitimately, not storyline, legitimately gets fired for choking Justin Roberts with his own tie during the Nexus invasion. Do you remember that? So here's the thing. Um, <laughs> first off, that that whole Nexus and coming out and pretty much destroying Raw down to the set, down to the tables, down to the announcers and everything like that was one of the better moments and, and highlights of 2010. Yeah, that was cool. Um, so kudos to that. Um and a, a little bit of backstory to that that I found really cool. So first and foremost, uh, CM Punk did talk about uh, recently how they were trying to quote unquote work the boys during that segment. It wouldn't tell them what was going on. So when they started fighting against you know him and John Cena, he started hitting back legit until he was told it was a work. Um, the other thing too, when Daniel Bryan was fired. Um, Justin Roberts actually had no idea. He thought it was a work when he heard that he was fired, and he was getting a lot of heat for it um, during that time. People were chanting at him, you know, you you got Daniel Bryan fired, those kind of things. Um, obviously, you know, the rest is history for Daniel Bryan to him coming back. But, uh, yeah, that, that was an interesting time. I, I actually went back and watched it a couple days ago, and... The WWE clip, it do- definitely does not show that Daniel Bryan portion on there. But I guess wow. it had a lot to do with the sponsors and, and kind of coming down on WWE. And somebody had to be the fault guy for it, and it right. was Daniel Bryan. Yeah, and I I doubt that D- Justin Roberts, being the wrestling fan that he is, or he, that he seems to be, he probably thought it was great. He probably thought the whole, yeah, the no whole angle feelings. was great. Yeah, not at all. I'm sorry, he, he probably thought it came off looking really cool and he probably you know came off ma- making the nexus looking look good and you know the stuff that uh justin roberts is doing on aew right now he's you know he's somebody that i think wwe really uh you know dropped the ball on quite a bit and i can't imagine john moxley coming out without justin roberts announcing his name <laughs> anybody named john he's it's just gold you know yeah yeah it <laughs> the, the uh, john moxley should have taken justin over to wrestle kingdom with him because it just wasn't the same without uh, justin <laughs> roberts doing the john moxley intro uh later on in the year daniel bryan would end up you know after some time away uh he was he would go out and do some indies and uh actually got even more popular you know probably made some good money after having that wwe exposure and then going doing some indies and then coming back apparently uh, he had a t-shirt him choking out just <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing i love it uh john cena was actually forced to join the nexus and uh was fired briefly and then returned to feud with wade barrett so wade barrett is getting you know a big run here he's getting he's feuding with john cena he would end up getting a title shot later on in the year against randy orton wade barrett they're pushing him like a big star coming out of this nxt uh season one yeah as they should have i mean wade barrett even then a lot of people recognize his charisma um and and i definitely feel like over the years he he grew he was one of those guys that you could see the amount of growth and potential in him that, for whatever reason, WWE just never fully realized. Uh, last Money in the Bank to ever take place at WrestleMania was in 2010. That It became its own pay-per-view three months later. Uh, that was won by Jack Swagger at WrestleMania. The first Money in the Bank pay-per-view itself was three months later, and they had two matches, one won by Kane and one won by The Miz. 
the Edge returned in from an injury in 2010 to win the Royal Rumble and would end up losing to Chris Jericho at WrestleMania. Uh, Jack Swagger cashed in on Chris Jericho. Randy Orton punt kicks Jericho out of the company and on to tour with Fozzie, I guess, in September. Kicked him all the way to the tour bus. <laughs> I mean, that, that's pretty cool for Jericho. Obviously, he wanted to fulfilled a dream at the time and we all know where Fozzie's kind of mm-hmm. uh, come up now and, and how su- how successful they've been and uh, you know Jericho's killer theme that he has now oh, for, man. Uh, so good oh such a good song <laughs> that's definitely in my workout playlist so so I was I was watching Wrestle Kingdom on demand on uh, the New Japan World app and I guess when it's not live or maybe maybe they did uh, change it live, but they could not play the music that was played in the arena. Uh, I don't know if they if they changed it live or they only changed it on the after the fact. They edited it on the on demand version. But his song was one of the ones that they had to change it to just generic guitar riff number six be, due <laughs> to copyright issues. And there was quite a few songs like that on uh, the Wrestle Kingdom show this past weekend, which. Uh, it was interesting to just hear, you know, generic uh, guitar riffs for uh, a lot of these uh, wrestlers. Makes you really appreciate good entrance music. That, that's something that uh, we've talked about at length on the show, uh, especially regarding guys that you don't know their entrance music, or or right now on AEW because the only notable music that you hear are guys like. Jericho, MJF, and Darby Allen. There's not really too many more than that. You d- you don't get the initial pop like you do, uh, especially in the the world these days where entrance music is so key. You know, everybody knows as soon as you hear "Shock the System," you know exactly who it is on NXT. Yep, absolutely. And uh, credit to AEW. It seems like they're trying. They're starting to get some of their audio things fixed. You mentioned that on your show last week that. The audio that we're hearing at home now is a lot better, and I think that helps our uh, immersion into the product a lot more when we can, you know, hear. Like I was watching it with uh, Will and Jason, my co-hosts on the show, and when Darby Allen's music came, we could hear it loud and clear. We knew from the first note that Darby Allen was uh, coming out, which is sounds like it seems like they're kind of getting some of that technical stuff together here in in 2020. I always say that pro wrestling is a lot of almost like you're at a rock show, to be honest with you. It, there's nothing really like being at a, a live show where it's part sports, obviously parts entertainment, part rock show, uh, part ballet, part soap opera. There's a lot of things, but the rock show part is so important that, that it feels like that because there's and I think that you and I experienced it when we were at war games. I think that and, and there was a part where there was some pyro. And I think that both you and I jumped at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I wasn't expecting it because WWE has kind of lulled me into this, you know, false sense of security over the last, you know, five or five or five to eight years, where oh, we don't have money for pyro, and then all of a sudden we got money for pyro, and so you know, I'm I'm not expecting it. I think you may have screamed, "We're under attack!" I don't remember <laughs> too, though. But <laughs> uh, to, finishing up 2010 here. Probably the probably the match of the year and one of the matches that we will never forget. Undertaker Shawn Michaels. This was the second WrestleMania match, and uh, it headlined WrestleMania 26 in Phoenix, Arizona. 
Shawn Michaels had lost to The Undertaker the year before and then came out, I believe at I believe it was at an elimination chamber in St. Louis here, and uh, super kicked The Undertaker, causing Undertaker to lose that match. That's where uh, Chris Jericho actually got the title heading into WrestleMania. And Shawn Michaels had been begging Undertaker for a rematch for months. Undertaker finally relents, but says that Shawn's got to put his career on the line. And Undertaker is victorious over Shawn Michaels in a, a match a lot of people say they didn't like as much as their first match, but still see it as one of the better WrestleMania matches of all time. I'm in that camp. I definitely like their WrestleMania 25 match much better than I like their the WrestleMania 26 match. Uh, it, it, Wrestle 25 match, especially on a Shawn Michaels basis, felt way more of an underdog. Excuse me, underdog uh, versus the WrestleMania 26 match, uh, and and I think it's just because Shawn Michaels came off as way more of a heel in that uh, Wrestle 20 WrestleMania 26 match um, versus you could be okay with either guy winning in 25. Sure. Um, I, I do remember thinking at the end of the WrestleMania 26 match though is Undertaker's knees have to really hurt after doing that jumping tombstone <laughs> to end the match. Um, I, I can't imagine what they must have felt like, and you know, I'm glad he didn't break Shawn, Shawn Michaels' uh, neck. So Shawn Michaels is on his way out here in 2010. Uh, Triple H actually, kind of under the radar, in April would have his last match as a full-time wrestler. He would still make uh, sporadic appearances. He talks. He references the break glass in case of emergency. Uh, Triple H, but this was kind of the beginning of Triple H kind of transitioning into more of the uh, corporate role and then the occasional wrestler. And then the same thing could be said for his evolution uh, compatriot, Batista, who lost an I Quit match in May to John Cena. And we don't see Batista again for four years. He goes off and becomes a, a movie star. Yeah, you know, I love the Guardians of the Galaxy movies and all the uh, Avengers-type movies. I thought that was great for him, obviously, to be able to pursue that dream. And I was also glad to see him out of the WWE at that time. I wasn't a fan of his as he was heading out, and clearly he his heart wasn't in it. Um, and even though he had that short run and coming back as Blue Tista, you know, he always makes an impact whenever he does come back. Uh, whether it's jobbing to Daniel Bryan uh, or you know being able to come back and telling Triple H, give me what I want, and, and you know, <laughs> I mean, that whole thing happened. And we're going to talk a little bit about that Batista return uh, four years later when we get to 2014. Uh, at this time, the, uh, the, the WWE Championship was kind of playing some hot potato in 2010. It went from Cena to Sheamus to Randy Orton to The Miz cashing in the money in the bank. And this was before The Miz had kind of changed my mind about him. I actually have come around on The Miz the last few years based on the Intercontinental title run that he had a few years ago. I thought he was one of the people who's made that title relevant again, and that kind of you know, got me some newfound respect for The Miz. But in 2010, man, I was not feeling The Miz as WWE champion. Miz definitely at the time was coming off as way more reality star than WWE star, and he it was kind of that in between moment. And over the last couple of years, he's definitely become more synonymous with the WWE versus anything with the real world. And, and unless it's brought up, uh, I'm sure that a lot of this generation of wrestling fans uh, have no idea that he was ever on the real world uh, or how he got started, but. 
we were still in that era. We still knew him as, you know, part of uh, the real world and that reality guy that really didn't deserve it. Um, the guy that messed up on that uh, diva search challenge. The guy that, <laughs> um, you know, that just didn't feel like he deserved to be there at that time. Uh, he probably would have done better with the slow rise, but. You know, Vince, he likes that celebrity name in the main event. Yeah, and the you know, stories of Miz getting kicked out of the locker room and having to change in the hallway. You know, just the backstage news was so prevalent, you know, at the beginning of, of the decade with, uh, you know, the Internet. And it, the uh, dirt sheets had kind of turned into uh, so easily accessible now you didn't have to mail away for it anymore you could just open up your computer and get all the backstage information and so we're knowing more about the wrestling business in 2010 than we ever had by the way make sure that you visit prowrestling.com for all your dirt sheet needs i hear they got some good stuff on there um there's a there's, they definitely do there's a guy that writes on there um he loves raw and smackdown and and uh, <laughs> uh doug something i don't i don't know now, I think you're thinking of Matthew over there. He, he's, he's, he's the better guy over there. Kudos to Matthew in the UK for uh, putting up with Raw and SmackDown. I, I, that Doug guy, he really likes uh, he really likes Raw and SmackDown. I'd like to see him, uh, you know, give give his uh, opinions on the the quality products that we're getting on uh, Monday nights and Friday nights. Uh, the Nexus uh, storyline kind of comes to a conclusion at uh, SummerSlam with a seven on seven elimination tag match which uh, Team WWE wins. That would be the uh, returning Daniel Bryan would be their uh, seventh uh, mystery partner there. So Daniel Bryan's back into the fold here. And then uh, kind of wrapping up with a few NXT notes here. This is when the, the NXT reality thing, they did three seasons of this in 2010. Uh, a few months later in June, we had season two that was won by Caval, who is known as Loki. He did not have a memorable run in the WWE. I don't even remember, hardly remember this. I remember that talking about that it happened, but I don't remember anything about Loki in the WWE. I only remember seeing clips of him in the WWE, and, and it's only because I've seen uh, Loki several times in the indies and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when people were telling me, like, no, he used to be Caval, I'm like, I, I gotta go see this, and it's just <laughs> not good, man. It's just not good. He, he's way better as this uh, assassin-type character right. uh, that, that he's been over the last several years. Russell's in a full suit. No problem. Which... I mean, the, he does it without breaking too much of a sweat. I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty impressive. Yeah, Loki's cool, man. Uh, another guy that would end up, you know, rising to some prominence in, in TNA after kind of um, WWE missing the boat on him. Uh, Curtis Axel, uh, known as Michael McGillicuddy at the time, was on <laughs> uh, season two. What an awful name. Just awful. In uh, season two of NXT. Uh, Husky Harris better known as Bray Wyatt uh, was in season two as well and uh, Titus O'Neil as well so some guys that are still around today so uh, can I tell you and, and sorry sorry to interrupt there but um, I, the only big thing that I hate about Husky Harris one of my favorite debuts of all time 
is that Bray Wyatt and the Wyatt family debut when he came out the we're here and coming out and crushing Kane. Yep. And, and the reason I'm mentioning Husky Harris, obviously you mentioned Husky Harris is now known as Bray Wyatt, is because of the smarky marks yep. that are chanting Husky Harris and ruining the moment um, as he's there saying, you know, um, follow the buzzards. And here you just hear the, these guys ruining the moment. Uh, and just thinking, God, guys, just shut up and enjoy this like really monumental moment yeah. to Bray Wyatt is. That's one. That's one time that I would be okay if WWE got a little creative with the sound editing. I don't like when they <laughs> when they pipe in cheers for people that we don't want to cheer just because you're forcing them down our throats. I don't I don't like that. But I that's one time that I would be okay if they wanted to go ahead and get creative with the editing and just take out. Uh, that for uh, you know future posterity. Uh, season three happened in September. Yes, there were three seasons of this crap in 2010. Uh, it was an all-ladies season, won by Caitlyn. I don't know if you remember Caitlyn. She's a former Divas champ, Doug. Yes, she is. She's uh, a lot of people would consider her a legend. She was last year on the May Young Classic. She made a mini comeback, and she's also uh, very good friends, if not, I believe, best friends with AJ Lee. I would say that she is one of the Divas champions of all time. <laughs> one of <laughs> I, I thought I misheard that for a second. <laughs> nope, but, you heard it yeah, right. She, she, <laughs> she I'm gonna go out on a limb. I like to be a kind of a controversial shock jock sometimes. I'm gonna say she is one of the Divas champions of all time. I will say to her credit. She was definitely uh, uh, put in the wrong time for wrestling. If, if she was available now, she had a lot of talent in ring, and it's unfortunate that she was in the Divas era of, of wrestling versus the women's era of wrestling um, because she did have an absolute amount of talent. She had a great look. She uh, was convincing as both a, a face and a heel. I mean, I, I definitely liked Caitlyn overall, and... Uh, now, hopefully she comes back and pays us a visit one more time, you know, more than just in the Mae Young Classic. Uh, a couple other ladies that uh, made their names in Season 3, Naomi, somebody who's still around today, and then uh, the aforementioned A.J. Lee was actually on yeah. Season 3. Love me some A.J. Lee. Uh, you know, I, she is absolutely missed. I feel like she, you know, we talked a little bit about her on uh, our year-end episode and I definitely feel like she is one of the pioneers and women responsible for turning the Divas era into the women's era. Uh, I, I always will remember her pipe bombshell when she was uh, talking a lot of crap towards the uh, total Divas and just pretty much ripped the bell as a new one. Fantastic moment. Yeah, I would. that's somebody that I would love to see. You know, as a surprise in a Royal Rumble or, or something like that, even if it's just a one-off, uh, she's somebody who I think flies under the radar a lot for the contributions that she had to making that transition from divas to the women's wrestling that we see today. She was really kind of one of the people that was kind of that bridge uh, from the the big ugly butterfly belt to. You know the women, the women headlining uh, Monday nights and Friday nights and pay-per-views that that we're getting today, and I think the butterfly she, belt that Paige made famous for the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> or the right reasons, depending on how you look at it. Uh, let's move on to 2011. On that note, uh, the Billboard Song of the Year in 2011 was uh, "Rolling in the Deep" by Adele. 
You're a big Adele fan, I know. You've Actually, I, I do love me some Adele. Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, my, my wife is a huge Adele fan, and she uh, has got me to know Adele significantly more. Uh, this is one song that whenever we're in the car, she belts out, and I have to just appreciate it for what it is. So um, kudos to her for uh, making me love this song now. I am very much looking forward to meeting your wife in uh, <laughs> a, a month or two, or about, about a month and a half at C2E2, and then we're going to go to revolution and it's gonna be great yeah she's all right yeah i got the same thing about my wife too she puts up with she puts up with my crap she's got to be pretty good uh i I gotta put be put in her uh or get back in the good graces because i made her watch the uh lana and rusev wedding segment last week yeah i heard uh, you did that Shame so on I'm, you. I'm a horrible husband for doing that. See, you know, I've I've been married for almost I've been married for 16 and a half years. So, you know, I, take it from a guy who's been married for a long time. You can't do shit like that, though. I'm telling you, <laughs> we're still on the honeymoon stage. So, you, you know, you, uh... you got to be careful. Uh, have you have you seen the Oscar winner from 2011, The King's Speech? The King's Speech, I do not remember at all. I did, I did not see the King's Speech, but you know, it must have been good. I didn't see it either. I don't. I, Oscars are just the uh, the uh, Hollywood's uh, annual uh, attempt to just uh, pat itself on the back for you know artsy movies, and then you got Martin Scorsese say, out here saying that the Avengers movies aren't real movies, and I'm like, damn you, Martin Scorsese! I love those <laughs> movies. Where would I be without? Without the Marvel movies in my life, I don't know where I'd be. Endgame was one of my favorite movies of last year. Same with Joker. So uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, maybe he just needs to sit down and have a come to uh, Jesus moment and watch the Joker and get a little sad there. <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, New Japan in 2011. Wrestle Kingdom 5 would take place, and Jeff Hardy would actually defend the TNA title successfully against uh, Naito. At, uh, that's kind of interesting. That's a match that I've never seen that might be uh, worth going back and taking a look at. Naito, of course, you know, spoiler alert for those that didn't go back and watch uh, Wrestle Kingdom this past year, or I'm sorry, this past couple days, this past week. Uh, but Naito, of course, winning both the IWGP Intercontinental and IWGP Heavyweight Champion, now having the uh, he's Naito two belts. Yeah, so yeah. Good, uh, I was going to say Tetsi two belts. <laughs> you know, I, I will tell you, I have gotten the chance to see Naito live in person uh, in Chicago, and the feel and change. I mean, it, there there are guys when, especially in the indie world, that you know that that guy is just a big deal. And, and when he came out, the entire feeling and the place changed. And I'm glad that he's getting the the chance now to uh, lead New Japan into the next decade. Yeah, I got a chance to see uh, him at the Glory Pro first anniversary show uh, here in St. Louis, and uh, he was the big uh, get in the main event. Yeah, Uh, just, I mean, the fact that he comes out to the ring in a full suit every time and takes 10 minutes to disrobe, and (laughs) you're not mad at him about it at all, there's something to be said about his star power right there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the guy is just next level, and... That match with Okada, yeah, just incredible. I'm, I'm sure Dave Meltzer, your, your best friend, is going to give it like 20 stars. <laughs> that is my best friend. That uh, We did give him a uh, 
an award at the yeah uh, he he got a uh what, what was it called a, a rhino wrestling award the yeah, um the horny over there yeah he got he got a horny he sure did uh and maybe you'll be in contention for a horny next year who knows uh i mean i, I am every <laughs> single day so <laughs> uh prince devitt aka finn balor successfully defended his iwgp junior heavyweight title against kota ibushi uh talk about a a dream match that I'd like to see tomorrow. You know, Finn Balor yeah. and Kota Ibushi, sign me up. I mean, if these guys wrestle today, obviously both of these guys are now at the top of their game in the business and their respective companies. I mean, the the fact that these guys already did it before, exactly what you said, I'd love to see it happen again. Maybe not Kota Ibushi for very much longer if he keeps getting, you know, dropped on his head and getting kicked in the back of the head. Every time I see him... His his vertebrae are compressing even more. I think he looks a little shorter every time I see him. <laughs> I would just love to see Kota Ibushi make his way to AEW, or hopefully, oh, yes. if uh, you know, especially with his relationship with Kenny, I'd love to see mm-hmm. the Golden Lovers come back. But I mean, with with what uh, Chris Jericho was saying this weekend, maybe there's a chance yet for uh, both companies to come together and work together, especially here in the U.S. with New Japan trying to uh, take over. Yeah, it seems like there was some some bad blood between the Bucks and Kenny and New Japan when they left but it seems like Jericho is trying to be the uh, you know extend the olive branch and try to uh, kind of build a relationship between these two companies if anybody can do it Chris Jericho can do it damn it and instead of being the pain maker he's going to be the peacemaker so hopefully he can't that's like a whole new t-shirt line every time he does anything (laughs) it's a t-shirt uh, talk about what's going on in TNA in 2011. We're still doing the WWE retread stories. Uh, we've got Mr. Anderson is your TNA champion in 2011. He did defeat uh, Jeff Hardy, and it lasted about a month before they put it right back on Jeff because putting a world title on Ken Anderson uh, is not a good idea, even back in 2011, it turns out. Yeah, I mean... It just doesn't sound the same when he holds the mic and says Anderson versus Kennedy. He's just so... Uh, Kennedy! He's, he's much more compelling that with that. Yep. Uh, Matt Hardy would actually debut in, in TNA in 2011. Uh, Sting would come back in, 2000, in 2011 on March 3rd and would actually defeat Jeff Hardy for the title. And then this was kind of the thing that we mentioned, alluded to in uh, a few minutes ago. Sting would defend the title against Jeff Hardy at Victory Road 10 days later, and that match only lasts 90 seconds because Jeff is high as a kite, baby. (laughs) I mean, this one is definitely one that Jeff Hardy didn't remember, but it was just so awkward. I mean, Sting, the, the match starts, Sting pretty much forces a pin on him. It's done so quick, and it was just so weird, man. I mean, you mentioned Eric Bischoff coming out. Um, you definitely know that something is wrong with Jeff Hardy right away. And the underwhelming finish, I mean, the, the shock that you hear in the announcer's voices is yeah. very, very telling. It tells a whole yep. story. Uh, Ric Flair is leading the Fortune faction. He uh, was trying to do the four fingers like the four horsemen, but apparently WWE shut, shot that down because of uh, some copyright infringement. So they started doing four fingers, but they were doing like four different fingers. Like I'm trying to show you on if you can see on the video right now. I think they were doing like <laughs> these four fingers trying to get uh, around that the copyright thing. But 
He's leading this fortune faction. They eventually merge with Hogan's immortal faction. Uh, and then some of the fortune guys like Chris Daniels and Kazarian and Robert Roode and James Storm, they branch off and they make their own faction to feud with the super faction at Lethal Lockdown. Have I you know, I gotta. You're with I, it, I gotta right? say, <laughs> I, I gotta say, I don't know how they allowed that uh, turning the the four into whatever you just did because I feel sexually assaulted watching you do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, then mission accomplished, I should say. Uh, <laughs> Which is probably why Ric Flair did that because that's kind of. He's <laughs> like, let's just do this. Uh, <laughs> the sacrifice pay per view in May has Kurt Angle teaming with China. They brought in China for a small run here uh, to defeat Jeff and Karen Jarrett. And that May of 2011, that would be China's last wrestling match ever. Now, was this pre or post uh, film career for her? I believe it was pre film career. (laughs) We're kind of uh, (laughs) dancing around the topic here. Uh, China starred in a series of films that were catering toward adults. <laughs> I would say that even though, you know, Sean Waltman spent one night in China, uh, you know, TNA spent a good amount of time with her and then she left shortly thereafter. She sure did. It was, it's, it's a, it's a sad, she's a, she's a sad tale of pro wrestling, man. The, the fact Definitely that, a tragedy. yeah, the All fact just, that she was so, you know, such a big deal in WWE and and that that Attitude Era and just uh, the stories that that we hear about her and why she left because of, you know, Triple H. She was in a relationship with Triple H and Triple H ended up in a relationship with Stephanie and that made things very awkward for China and then it was just really all downhill when she got out of that WWE bubble and that support system that she had. Uh, you know, showing up in TNA it was I, I vaguely remember it. Uh, I, they brought her in because uh, Kurt Angle and Jeff Jarrett were using real life drama over the fact that Karen was the former uh, wife of Kurt Angle and then was now with Jeff Jarrett and raising Kurt's kids. And uh, Jeff couldn't or uh, Kurt couldn't put a hand on uh, Karen, but he could get another lady to put hands on. Karen, and that's when they brought in China. Bully Ray constantly talks about this segment, and for the reason, especially recently, uh, because of the lack of realism that Seth Rollins was showing as a babyface, and, and talking about the epitome of realism and the way that they were able to make this real life thing such a, a storyline and, and and really. I mean, the fact that that you could see it playing out all on air was not only at the same time a a horrible, awkward thing to see, but at the same time such an amazing thing to see Mm -hmm. uh, happening on TV. Yep. Uh, I don't know how how Kurt did it. Uh, You know, it just seems like it would be way too, you know, awkward of a thing for me to handle, but. You know, I mean, Kurt, he was Kurt, drunken on painkillers the whole yeah, time too. Yeah, you, know, so, you, know. you know, maybe he doesn't remember it. You know, who who knows? Maybe him and <laughs> uh, him and Jeff Hardy were uh, partying together. Uh, Probably. Mis- uh, guess what, Doug? Mister Anderson wins the ti- world title back by beating Sting in June with the help of Eric Bischoff. 
So uh, your boy's back on top. Yeah, Mr. Anderson uh, taking down the immortal Sting and. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why they why they do those kind of things. I mean, well, I, I get it that they're trying to make and and have this new star, so to speak, be built. And it, I think that Mr. Anderson at this point is probably more synonymous, if you ask anybody now, with TNA slash Impact versus WWE. Um, but this is definitely one of the things that helped them do that. I just... Yeah, I don't have much else to say about it. All right, let's finish up with uh, TNA in 2011 because I'm tired of talking about Mr. Anderson as the champ here. There's uh, a lot of Mr. Anderson in There's a lot of Mr. Anderson. There is. Way too much. Uh, Kurt Angle would actually defeat Sting to win the TNA title in August. Uh, Bobby Roode would win the Bound for Glory series, uh, would lose his title match uh, at the end of the Bound for Glory series, and uh, his beer money partner, James Storm, would win the title the next night. Uh, Bobby Roode becomes number one contender after beating Samoa Joe. So there's another name that's very prominent right now. That that just kind of speaks to the fact that TNA had so many guys that they missed the boat on that are still in big spots today. You know, Drew McIntyre had a, had a really big uh, had a really good run there. Uh, Bobby Lashley had a really good run there that we're going to talk about uh, in uh, probably 2013-2014. They had a a lot of talent, man, that's working for WWE and AEW right now. And like I said, we we mentioned they're they're riding the ship now under the new regime. But man, they missed the boat on so many guys. Just when you when you when Samoa Joe is just a throwaway name in 2011. It it's maddening to a point. Do you credit WWE to making these names bigger names like Samoa Joe, or do you credit guys like Samoa Joe, you know, taking that TNA fame and, and making his name in the Indies and elsewhere uh, once he got out of TNA? I'll tell you what I give WWE credit for: something that they didn't used to do when they brought in like a Kevin Owens, and they when they brought in an AJ Styles, and when they brought in a Samoa Joe, which was all very close to one another, when that happened, I, th- I was thinking that man, ten years earlier, Vince would never have done that. They never, never. they never, they never used to uh, scout the indie scene and bring in guys that were were the indie darlings. They they always hated that. It was like the you know who I give that Scarlet Letter for something. You gonna say Triple H? <laughs> no, not so much. Uh, I give I give that credit to CM Punk, who a guy that oh. we're going to be talking a lot about in 2011. But CM Punk was that indie darling, and, and he really changed the pro wrestling. If it wasn't for him, um, arguably Daniel Bryan wouldn't have gotten his spot at WrestleMania sure. 30. Um, the guys that are smaller that aren't aren't considered the land of the giants, so to speak. Uh, guys like AJ Styles, guys like Adam Cole, guys like Tommaso Ciampa probably would not have the spotlight that they do the, right now. Yeah, it's there was really a uh, a change in the culture that that seemed to take place uh, kind of in the in the time frame that we're going to be talking about in the next couple of years that we're going to be talking about here is really when you started to see the WWE start to think that you know what we got to start mining some of these these other areas. We can't just, 
you know, keep going after pro football players. We can't just keep going after, you know, people that that we think we can bring in and kind of make into pro wrestlers. We got to go after some of these guys that have been, uh, you know, uh, what's that want to be wrestlers? Yeah, the, the, you know, even yeah, they're. There's, I was <laughs> thinking of a terminology about like cutting their teeth. Uh, I was like, is cutting well, their teeth is that the right metaphor there? Uh, cutting their teeth on the on the indies. Uh, well, and a lot of these guys are, are like us when when you know we were coming up and watching the Attitude Era or the the, the Monday Night Wars and that kind of things. You know, guys like Xavier Woods is a perfect example of a guy who was a wrestling fan nerd, probably the guy that people made fun of back in high school. And look at him now. I mean, he's you know, one of the most winningest champions, especially in the tag team of all time. He's got um, several videos out there. I mean, he's just successful all around. Yeah, I saw that video with him and Paige. Yeah, that was a good one. I, uh... This might be an all-Paige uh, <laughs> podcast here. Uh, Bobby Roode, like I said, uh, becomes the number one contender by beating Samoa Joe. He smashes a beer bottle on James Storm, turns heel, wins the title, and uh, has a nice little run with the uh, TNA title here. I think he signed a a five-year contract somewhere around there and was going to be one of the guys that they were going to, one of of those homegrown talents that they were going to kind of put, have pulling the uh, TNA wagon going forward. And then I had in the notes here, I think you'd be interested that Eric Young defeated Jesse Goddard's and Robbie E to win the Turkey Bowl in 2011. He won the Turkey Bowl, Doug. Uh, Jesse Goddard's, (laughs) I believe he's from a uh, reality show as well. And Robbie E., uh, who's down at NXT right now doing nothing. <laughs> the only guy that really still is relevant or matters out of these guys, obviously, is Eric Young. Uh, but even him you know, is teetering on the edge of relevancy because since uh, leaving Sanity, what has Eric Young really done? I think the last time I saw him, he got annihilated, I think, to... Braun Strowman or one of the big men that's out there? Well, he won the Turkey Bowl in 2011. I don't know if I mentioned that. <laughs> the Turkey Bowl, Doug. That's kind of a big accomplishment. I'm sure that's on his Who mantle hasn't right won now. The turkey bowl I have not won a Turkey Bowl in my in my years on this earth. I have never won a Turkey Bowl. So you're a better man than me if you have. Uh, talk about Ring of Honor. We've got uh, Roderick Strong starting the year 2011 as the champ. Eddie Edwards would win the title in March. Eddie Edwards, somebody who's still active on TNA right now. Uh, His partner, Davey Richards, would actually uh, win the title from Eddie Edwards in June. Uh, Them of the uh, American Wolves and then just the Wolves in Impact Wrestling. And Davey Richards would carry that title for almost uh, an entire year. And a couple of names that are very prominent on NXT right now, Adam Cole and Kyle O'Reilly win a tournament in July to become the number one tag team contenders. So that's what Adam Cole, Bebe, and Kyle O'Reilly of the Undisputed Era were doing uh, nine years ago back in Ring of Honor. Well, and that's part of the reason that they teamed these guys up. I remember when... uh when they originally originally you know had that faction form on Adam Cole's debut uh, a lot of people were calling it the Ring of Honor invasion when it was Red Dragon and then you suddenly you see Adam Cole there uh, obviously later adding Roderick Strong but uh, it's funny to see that these two guys were teaming back then but Kyle O'Reilly really became a more prominent tag team wrestler when he started teaming with Bobby Fish with Red Dragon. Yep, absolutely. And then Kyle O'Reilly would actually become 
uh, Ring of Honor champion years later, beating Adam Cole. And then Adam Cole would win the title back from Kyle O'Reilly when Kyle O'Reilly would uh, leave the company. And then Adam Cole would leave the company shortly after that. So uh, it, uh, the fact that these guys are have been connected for so long is kind of cool to see that they're still doing great things. And if you saw the award show that NXT did at their, uh, I guess the, the show they did last week was uh, kind of their year-end uh, 2019 award show, Undisputed Era just cleaned up, man. So they're, the fact that they're these former Ring of Honor guys are doing so many great things nine years later is just really cool to see especially you know considering where adam cole is now who is considered one of the most dominating wrestlers in all of wrestling not just nxt uh when just a couple years back he was being killed by the bullet club yeah it's uh it's very interesting to see that you know the kind of year that adam cole could potentially have in 2020 the fact that they're Integrating NXT with the main roster, the quote-unquote main roster, uh, Raw and SmackDown talent so much. Could we see Adam Cole in a big match at WrestleMania this year? Could we see Adam Cole have a uh, a really good run in the Royal Rumble this year? You know, who knows what 2020 could spell for the Undisputed Era? It could be even better than 2019. Yeah, I mean, we've had a couple of recent predictions, really future booking. Uh, WrestleMania when it, and, and the Royal Rumble when it comes to uh, on STF Underground and I definitely see a Adam Cole part main event even though they like to call like six matches main events on WrestleMania these days but uh, one of the more featured matches in WrestleMania and, and if you ask me uh, I definitely feel like Tommaso Ciampa is going to be the person contending at that time against Adam Cole. So now we get into some fun stuff for you, Doug, because I think 2011 was kind of your reintroduction into I'm a lot of this a pro wrestling. So here he's back, baby. We talk about some of the stuff that was going on in WWE, and we're going to talk a lot about CM Punk uh, right now. Alberto Del Rio begins the year by winning the first ever 40-man Royal Rumble. Uh, the Miz is running with the WWE title for most of the year. And The Rock returns to host WrestleMania. Rock is back for the first time in seven years after his uh, Hollywood run. He comes back in 2011. He has some uh, drama with John Cena over some uh, social media issues that the two had had uh, during The Rock's absence. Uh, the Miz would defeat John Cena at uh, WrestleMania for the WWE title due to the interference of The Rock. and uh, But Cena would win the title back the next month but that kind of leads to i think one of the more intriguing things that has happened in the last decade the rock challenges john cena to a match at wrestlemania the next night on raw for next year's wrestlemania which started a really i thought it was a really cool one-year build between these two you knew what the match was going to be a year from now and it wasn't like every week they were going at it or every week they were cutting promos on each other. But that was always in the back of your mind that one year from now, these two were going to square off. And I thought that was one of the more interesting things. We talk about long-term booking as a thing that we don't see very often in pro wrestling nowadays. This was a whole year in the making. I thought that this was a really uh, interesting storyline. And this was right around the time that you were getting back into pro wrestling. 
Yeah, and you know, this definitely I think interesting is a good way to put it because it wasn't all interesting in a good way. There were definitely some bad notes to it. Um, the Rock not seeing the same success with the crowd that he had seen uh, in in years past, kind of uh, putting a lot of uh, homosexual type uh, uh, of promos out there. Uh, I'm calling John Cena a lot of things that uh, would never pass these days. I think the one of the words was a uh, Wonder Woman cross-dressing transvestite, things like that. Uh, I, I remember him trying to con- start chants like Cookie Puss to, to his John Cena. And then he had a lot of really great moments uh, between the two and a lot of you know, back and forth, really uh, what seemed to be unscripted moments between the two uh, with with their what seemed to be real-life heat. So that, that was definitely a very interesting to see over the course of that year uh which of course uh ended in you know the following years wrestlemania when they went finally one-on-one the thing i liked about the feud here is john cena got to come out of a shell a little bit for a while there he had kind of they had kind of neutered john cena to the point where he was just the the fan the the kid-friendly you know, wearing the the neon colors. Yeah, exactly. He was he was very uh, du- you know dumbed down to the point to where a lot of times he wasn't very interesting. But when he got the uh, the training wheels off and got to go toe to toe with the Rock, I think we got to see John Cena, the John Cena that we kind of fell in love with. You know, the Doctor of Thugonomics, John Cena. That that more. Uh, you know, off the rails, kind of, you know, say what's on his mind, John Cena, and showed that when John Cena wants to cut a promo on you, he really can do it. I mean, the guy knows how to work a crowd, and and, and exactly what you said, this is really the transition of that five-year period or so where John Cena had become significantly stale. He was the epitome of what sports entertainment is, uh, and... and you know, he wasn't catered to the adult fans, which The Rock called out quite a bit and uh, talking about how the only fans that um, that will cheer for John Cena. And I think The Rock said something along the lines of every single night you hear two things, John Cena, that will eat at you forever. You hear, let's go, Cena, Cena sucks. And, and all the grown men that are in, in, in the crowd are guys that hate John Cena. So, um this this to me really started the transition to having that cool John Cena back and even though it it was cool to hate him so to speak over the next couple of years you saw him starting to incorporate more than his five moves of doom trying starting to develop again that promo you saw uh, a lot of really good promos going into the the feud with CM Punk later the feud with Roman Reigns and that was all really stemming from these moments where John Cena knew that he had to change to Make what The Rock said, not right. Uh, the Undertaker beats Triple H in the first of two matches that they would have back-to-back at WrestleMania. Beats Triple H by submission, but is carted out. So, wins the match, but uh, if you remember, he uh, Triple H is the one that actually is walking out at the end, and uh, Undertaker is not. And that would set up their match, uh, the rematch, for next year. Uh, Edge kind of had a weird year in 2011. He defeats... Alberto Del Rio at WrestleMania to retain the heavyweight title, but one week later, Edge comes out on TV and is forced to retire uh, due to, uh, I believe, was it a neck or a back issue that 
that uh, neck injury. It was, uh, you know, definitely it's the same one that Paige was forced to retire with, uh, and one that people tend to not come back from. I know that uh, Edge had broken his neck earlier in his career, and during that speech, talked about how he was living on borrowed time as it was. Uh, so the doctors pretty much told him that if he doesn't retire, he's going to end up paralyzed the rest of his life. Well, it's kind of interesting because we've heard a lot of rumors lately that, you know, and Edge has denied these, but, you know, such prominent journalists as uh, my buddy Dave Meltzer have come out and said that Edge has, has is going to sign with WWE. Edge is going to be back in the ring. What do, you, what do you think about any of that? Do you think that's something that is feasible in 2020? I think that regardless of when you're out, you're out. All of these guys have an itch, right? And, and, and like all these guys say, there's nothing like being in front of that crowd, that rush, that entrance music, that, you know, holding up uh, a title in the middle of the ring, you know, being in front of the fans, in front of the WWE universe. So um, there, there's probably half truths to it, and, and I can only assume what Edge was probably doing is undergoing some tests to see if there would be any clearance uh, to see what could happen and, and kind of see where he's at. Um, but I don't see Edge returning anytime soon, if at all. Uh, but he's probably just getting that peace of mind of knowing either A, he made the right decision, or B, maybe he can make that, you know, once in a lifetime moment where he comes back and, you know, has a match against someone. I really don't even know who I'd like to see him come back against, if anybody. Uh, I was never a big edge head myself, other than when he was an edging, uh, with Edge and Christian. Uh, but I definitely understand where the appeal is um, and why people would want to see him back. Uh, Daniel Bryan would win the Money in the Bank in 2011, says he will cash in at next year's WrestleMania, and instead cashes in on the big show at TLC for Daniel Bryan's first WWE World title run, and this time as a heel, where he is doing the the yes chants kind of become uh, his thing after matches, which the crowd is not feeling at all. And this is just kind of the seeds that we're planting, the uh, the very the genesis of uh, the the very first uh, things that we see from Daniel Bryan that would grow into the phenomenon that we would see just a year or two later. It's very interesting to see how much people hated that at the time and were so annoyed by it, but now it, it's. It's kind of like the what chance, yes, will live on forever and ever and ever in the wrestling world. Um, and the, again, the dynamic of how much people just hated it at the time to now, it's pretty hilarious. Well, let's get into uh, one of your favorite topics here, CM Punk. This was the summer of Punk in WWE. After briefly uh, leading the Nexus faction, Punk becomes number one contender and then comes that pipe bomb promo on Monday Night Raw. Uh, what do you remember about that moment? Were you watching it live? Were you? Uh, did you know in the moment that this was something that a promo that we were never going to forget? Is looking back on it, you know, if I had to say, you know, promos that, uh, you know, all-time great promos. You think of like. You know, Dusty Rhodes, hard time promo. You think about the promo that Flair cut after he won the Royal Rumble, I think, in 92. Tear to my eye. Yeah. With a tear in my eye! By God! (laughs) 
CM Punk's pipe bomb promo where he's just sitting, uh, you know, uh, Indian style crisscross applesauce on the top of the ramp with the Stone Cold t-shirt on. And he's breaking the third wall and saying hi to Colt Cabana and calling out, you know, all the, you know, crap that's going on in WWE before his mic eventually gets cut because he was going to talk about uh, an ant- the WWE's anti-bullying campaign but he was going to talk about like the bullying that goes on within the company and I think that somebody said okay okay bud you've had, you've had enough time on the mic here it was just gold what do you remember about that pipe bomb promo in 2011 well to answer your question I actually did not see this live um, and the, this was a moment that that brought me back to wrestling. And um, it wasn't until a month, maybe two months later, that I was even informed that this happened. I watched it, and then it, it kind of hooked me back into wrestling. Um, to set the stage even more, um, this entire uh, storyline is actually a rehash, for those that don't know. It, it was originally done in Ring of Honor, uh, when CM Punk was leaving Ring of Honor to sign with the WWE, and originally he was uh, going to, he announced his leaving of Ring of Honor uh, and pretty much signed his WWE contract on top of the Ring of Honor Championship, uh, and said that he was going to be leaving with the ROH title. Uh, it eventually led to him dropping the title, of course, but uh, similar to what this was, um, first and foremost. You know, people knew that CM Punk was going to leave backstage, and um, somebody told him that he could pretty much have a live mic and say whatever he wants when he went out, and he he didn't believe it when it was happening. Um, and at the time, CM Punk uh, interrupted a main event of Our Truth versus John Cena, and how the wrestling <laughs> landscape has changed, where you're having Our Truth versus John Cena in a tables match uh, to main event Monday Night Raw. That's gold, baby. That's gold. <laughs> Um, so obviously our truth with his childhood idol John Cena uh, going one on one at the time, um, but CM Punk pushes the table aside, uh, essentially costing uh, John Cena the title. And I'm not going to bore you with reciting the entire promo, which I definitely can do, but just some of my highlights of some of the things that I love. Um, you mentioned him talking about breaking the fourth wall, him mentioning certain things like. John Cena, I don't even hate you. I like you. I like you a hell of a lot more than than uh, a lot of the guys in the back. Uh, what I hate is this idea that you're the best because I'm the best in the world. And it was a perfect mix of breaking that fourth wall with understanding you're delivering a promo, with selling the match, with talking about um, still him versus John Cena. Um, the fact that, and we talked a lot about this earlier with uh, John Cena versus The Rock. Uh, at, at WrestleMania the following year, and CM Punk used that in this and saying, um, the fact that you and Dwayne are in the main event of WrestleMania next year makes me sick. Because obviously CM Punk, still to this day, as far as we know, uh, has that kind of thing, that hiccup of about him never main eventing a WrestleMania. Um, I still get goosebumps when I watch this promo because it was the, again, the, the epitome of not just saying what people are thinking uh, as far as in the WWE but really the change of the tide it it was at at the time and for better or worse uh, people at the time were really just going with the flow of the WWE just kind of really accepting this is the WWE now we have the uh, guest 
commentators and celebrities here, and it's really this big circus show versus a sports entertainment or whatever it is, uh, to really becoming more of a notable, watchable, palatable show on Monday Night Raw. And I think CM Punk really changed all that. Um, and, and, you know, we talked about earlier with having now the complete different landscape of even the, the type of wrestlers that we have in the WWE, this changed it all. And in Punk's promo, he claims that he's going to win that WWE title and leave when his contract expires at the Money in the Bank pay-per-view on June 17th. And that's what he does. Punk defeats John Cena at Money in the Bank. And my buddy, Dave Meltzer, rated it the first five-star match for a WWE match in 14 years since I watched 1997 was the last five-star match that he had rated for WWE. I watched this match back once a year at least, uh, not to mention that it's in Chicago, you know, my hometown of Chicago. Um, it's really the most insane crowd that you'll ever see live, uh, and you can tell it from the time that CM Punk's music hits. Um, to the time that of the end of the match, um, nearly a, a perfect match between the two. I really can't think of any botches that happen really in the match that are notable. Even though, you know, the Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 25 is considered one of the best match, if not the best match of all time. You still have that Undertaker head dive where you kind of cringe where you see him uh, <laughs> hitting that. Yep. Uh, on the ground uh, you, you don't really see anything like that in, in John Cena versus CM Punk and honestly it's not even their best match I, I, I consider their Monday Night Raw match where uh, you know where CM Punk hit that pile driver yes. on John their, their best match that they had even though a, a really weird uh, Hurricane Rana from John Cena <laughs> um, but I mean great moment there uh, a lot of callbacks to the Montreal Screwjob. Um, CM Punk actually had to sign a one-day extension on his contract uh, to be able to wrestle that match because his contract really didn't end on June 17th. Um, and he didn't end up signing a, a contract until that evening at the show. Um, so I found that all really cool. Um, you see a lot of that backstory when it comes to you know if, if you go back and watch his best in the world uh, documentary I think it's on WWE.com um, he talks about all of that and it's just really really intriguing so CM Punk uh, leaves with the title and shows up on a, a couple of uh, indie shows I think uh, with, the, with the title which I thought was kind of cool he would end up coming back Shortly thereafter, Cena would win the vacated title after Punk leaves. Weeks later. Yeah, Punk comes back. He comes back with his old cult of personality music that he used to use in Ring of Honor. WWE uh, got the rights to that for him. And uh, Punk comes back to try to unify those belts. But, man, I looking back on this, the only thing that I, that I wish they would have done different, I wish they would have had Punk going to, you know, he said that, Maybe I'll go to Ring of Honor and defend this title. I wish he would have done that. You know, I wish he would have gone to New Japan with that title. I wish he would have showed up everywhere with that title. And I wish they would have, you know, drug this thing out for six to eight months. I think it could have been one of the cooler storylines in the history of pro wrestling if they would have drug this thing out even more and kept Punk in 
the, the pro wrestling bubble, just not in WWE, and kept people, you know, thinking, who's the real champ? Is it John Cena who's actually there, or is the guy that beat John Cena and, and left with the title left on top? I I don't know what your, what your thoughts are about that, but I really think that that is a missed opportunity that WWE should be kicking themselves in the ass for years later. I mean, they ended up having a uh, one-night tournament two weeks later that Rey Mysterio ended up winning, followed by John Cena ended up winning the title, and then CM Punk coming out. Uh, we'll talk about that moment here in a minute, but I, I feel like they could have dragged that um, over the course of a several-week tournament, um, maybe even capped off as a surprise at a pay-per-view and had that moment at the following pay-per-view to, you know, John Cena's holding up the title, CM Punk's holding up the title at that pay-per-view. People would have been tuning into the following night, Monday Night Raw, um, like crazy. Uh, and exactly like you mentioned, CM Punk could have been showing up everywhere uh, with that championship and creating a lot more drama and maybe even uh, kind of going against WWE, maybe even having... Uh, John Cena mentioning Punk and like you know saying like I saw him here and you know I don't care about that stuff. Uh, there could have been a lot of different ways, but uh, I definitely still think that that moment where um, Cena wins a title and Punk comes out to cult of personality, you hear that music, uh, Cena looks confused, and that moment Punk comes out with the championship was just a fantastic, fantastic moment. So uh, Punk would go on to defeat. John Cena with Triple H as the ref at SummerSlam to unify those titles. Alberto Del Rio would cash in right after that with the help of Kevin Nash for some reason. <laughs> do, you rem- do you have uh, a very good memory of Kevin Nash being around uh, the WWE in 2011? I've, I vaguely remember this. So if, if you can't tell, I'm a pretty much CM Punk historian during this time. Um, for for the reason that, again, th- this really changed wrestling for me. I consider Punk to be one of my favorites. And yeah, th- this whole time um, during this, this is where I got the term charisma vacuum from because that's what CM Punk referred to as Kevin Nash. And that's what I now affectionately call <laughs> Natalia uh, every single week. But That said, uh, Kevin Nash comes out after CM Punk uh, wins the title from John Cena after uh, John Cena, I believe, had his foot on the rope and uh, Triple H missed the the foot on the rope for the three count uh, crowning Punk champion. Uh, Kevin Nash comes through the crowd, jackknife powerbombs Punk, Alberto Del Rio comes out, makes the pin. Uh, It ended up being this whole... You know, Triple H texted me to do it, but then he didn't text me to do it, and I texted Triple H or myself from Triple H's phone, and I have proof. And then it ended up being this really weird go back and forth between CM Punk and Kevin Nash um, that was just so entertaining, and CM Punk just verbally owning Kevin Nash week after week. And then a really weird ending where it just wasn't interesting, and Kevin Nash got fired, uh, and you know, nothing really ever paid off on that. The the, the payoff, honestly, uh, was CM Punk not believing Triple H, quote unquote, unquote, and them having that match shortly thereafter. Right. So uh, Punk would uh, things would all things would be right in the world when Punk would regain the title at Survivor Series from Del Rio, and that started the historic 434 day title run, which we're going to get into more when we talk about 2012. 
but it's important to mention that The Rock would actually have his first match in seven years when he would team with John Cena against R-Truth and The Miz at Survivor Series uh, to close out 2011. Uh, Did you enjoy that match? I th- <laughs> I, uh, I thought it was cool to see The Rock back, but the R-Truth and The Miz were just sacrificial lambs to the... Uh, the star power that it was John Cena and The Rock. So it was cool for for what it was. It's always cool to see The Rock back in the ring, especially after, you know, seven years. But, you know, as far as why the match actually happened, eh, I could take it or, you know, lose it. If you told somebody today that The Rock and John Cena teamed against R-Truth and The Miz, do you think they'd believe you? No. <laughs> no, not at all. Absolutely not. Uh, to close out 2011, NXT had season four. Did you know that Fandango won season four of NXT? Uh, I had no <laughs> idea Fandango was in uh, season four of NXT. I uh, mean, he was known as Johnny Curtis. Johnny Curtis. Yeah, very good. Um, good job. Gold but, star uh, for you. <laughs> I, I knew the rumor was when he came out as Fandango uh, in his initial match with Chris Jericho that Johnny Curtis can go. And, and I really do like him in the ring, even though he's kind of this joke guy with uh, with um, Tyler Breeze. Breeze, with Tyler Breeze now and Breezango. But, uh, yeah, I mean, good for Johnny Curtis, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh, other notable names on that season were Brodus Clay. Uh, Byron Saxon, so uh, we, that that brought Bri- Byron Saxon into our lives, so we're thankful for yeah. that, right? Yeah. Uh, Connor from The Ascension, and uh, somebody named Derek Bateman, who would go on to later be known as EC3. Oh, that is right. <laughs> How about Where that? Where is EC3 these days? I mean, uh, last I, I saw, he knows. was in an elevator drinking coffee. Yeah, he was. He likes to drink coffee in elevators. He likes to drink out of red solo cups at uh, parties backstage. That's kind of what he does. And he likes to chase around the 24-7 title. That's kind of what he I does mean, now. If he does that, I mean, hopefully he goes and uh, tells his aunt, you know, that he needs to go back to Impact Wrestling. Yeah, he needs to tell his aunt Dixie that he needs to go back. <laughs> Uh, and then we also, in 2011, I don't even remember this, uh, Season 5 was called NXT Redemption, where they brought back uh, the former, so several former competitors. Uh, EC3 was in there as Derek Bateman. Darren Young was in there. Titus O'Neil was in there. And in my research, I found out that they never had a winner. This season never ends. This season is still going on <laughs> today. They just kind of forgot that it happened. They had uh, mentors for part of the season, and then they just stopped having mentors and acted like nobody noticed, I guess because nobody was watching. And this season just kind of phased out. And that's when when we get into 2012, where NXT, the uh, former iteration of NXT and the reality show NXT kind of gets thrown away and we get more of the NXT that we know today which is a lot better thank god for that absolutely so let's move to 2012 and uh, I'm going to hear Doug sing a few bars of somebody that I used to know by Gautier somebody that I used Used to know know. somebody (laughs) somebody (laughs) that song got played to 
the hilt in 2012 and um i uh, i don't get it i just don't get it yeah uh, i mean not a, not my favorite song ever uh it's way more catchy and i'm sure that we're glad that it was a song that we used to know and uh how many other songs uh, can you name by gautier uh none <laughs> none me neither that's it and uh, the Oscar winner for Best Picture in 2012 was The Artist, another movie that I did not see. I will definitely go on record to say that The Artist was a movie in 2012. It was one of the movies, Doug, in 2012. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go out even further than you and say it was one of the movies in 2012. <laughs> uh, Russell Kingdom uh, talking about New Japan, Wrestle Kingdom 6 took place in 2012. A lot of names uh, that are very prevalent today. Hiroshi Tanahashi beat your boy, Minoru Suzuki, <laughs> to retain the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. Uh, you have uh, some experience with uh, Mr. Suzuki. I mean, he's a man of not many words, but I mean, he like he likes my car. I know that he does. He likes your car, and he likes to drink beer in your car. Is, is, is <laughs> yeah, my understanding. Yeah. Strangely, not the uh, the craziest story with beer and wrestlers coming out of uh, <laughs> Warrior Wrestling in Chicago. I mean, we have a lot of really great stories with them. So yeah, that you need to listen to uh, uh, Doug on the STF Underground podcast because. You get, uh, you've heard of comedians in cars uh, getting coffee. You get wrestlers in Doug's cars and his friends' cars <laughs> drinking beer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially yeah. wrestlers Amazing that moments. don't speak uh, a lick of English. Uh, yeah, no, th- we always seem to get stuck with that. Now, he, he did say nice, nice car. <laughs> <laughs> it was nice car. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I love it. So, Minoru Suzuki... Uh, Kind of had a uh, some big moments in uh, Wrestle Kingdom this weekend too. Yeah, I mean Minoru Suzuki is a legend. That that's another guy who, I, who I've seen in the Indies, obviously pretty recently with with that run in that I had with him. And again, another guy that you see and just the whole mood changes in the crowd. The, the guy is a legend, and the fact of the matter is that at the time Wrestle Kingdom six uh, with Tanahashi against Suzuki, I mean those two guys. I mean that's that's a dream match. Yeah. Tanahashi is is highly regarded as the guy that took you know a New Japan Pro Wrestling out of their dark ages and into the new era and really saved them uh, and, and considered their ace over the last several years. Um, obviously, getting the IWGP Heavyweight Championship at the time uh, and retaining that against Suzuki. Uh, Prince Devitt, Finn Balor, and. Uh... I don't know how to say this name. Raisuki Taguchi? Sounds right to me. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) They won the IWGP Junior Tag Team title, so uh, Prince Devitt is holding some gold in 2012 in New Japan. And Okada is uh, back in New Japan after a lackluster run in the United States and with TNA. Okada in Wrestle Kingdom uh, 6 is the fourth match on the card. Uh, We've seen him main eventing Wrestle Kingdoms the last uh, several years in 2018, 2019, 2020. But back in 2012, Okada had kind of come over to the States and uh, didn't really do a, uh, didn't really have a very successful run and was kind of uh, one of the low men on the totem pole in New Japan. So funny how things change uh, as the decade goes along. 
Yeah, I, I know that in TNA, Okada was um, really the... Uh, I believe he was with Homicide at the time, and then he, he was going... Um, partners with, uh, I can't remember who, but he was pretty much um, considered like a lackey in TNA, and uh, again, if, if TNA could go back and see the talent that they had, Okada, I mean, is just star power, the amount of 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and, and 9 and 10 and 11 star matches that this guy has had, uh, I mean, it, it's just incredible, and the fact that he's done it against so many different guys is even more insane um even though the rainmaker is my least favorite finisher maybe of all time it is the least protected finisher in the history of wrestling i believe or or maybe it's just you know i I get to see the rainmaker so often considered it's used like 10 times each match Mm -hmm. Uh, but just a close uh, line with that (laughs) even with that okada then to now incredible and you think about uh you know TNA and we talk about the people earlier that they had they had them and could have utilized them so much better than they did they had AJ Styles they had Samoa Joe they they had these guys they had Okada they could have they had access to Okada how many every company in the world right now would love to have access to uh, Okada on their cards and another person that I had on the, the list here, uh, Naito is back full-time in New Japan. He had a run in TNA, and his last match in TNA, he lost a handicap match to Kevin Nash. Can you imagine, if, if you look back in the right time in history, uh, either they were they were past chips or probably even at, at times at the same time, you may have had at the same roster Okada, Naito, AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, um, Jeff Hardy, Kurt King, Angle, <laughs> Kurt Angle, in his prime, Kurt uh-huh. Angle, by the way. Yep. Uh, not to mention, you know, Bobby Roode, EC3, um, Austin Aries, uh, all these guys. I mean, Christopher Daniels and, and Kazarian, all these guys that now could main event pretty much any show mm-hmm. is just insanity to me. If you had that roster today, that would, I mean, it would be hard to, it would be hard for the WWE to compete with that roster. You put that roster on a show on Monday night against Raw, which which show are you watching? You watching Raw or are you watching that, that, you know, super show that's got all these, uh, you know, Hall of Famers on it? I mean, <laughs> at the time, um, even though... 2012 was really taken over by uh, CM Punk. You had guys like uh, Sheamus. You had guy. I mean, uh, the, there was zero tag team division in, in the WWE. I think you had the Usos still doing their little haka dances. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, taking a look at what that roster could have been, man. I mean, if 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 we only knew then what we know now. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, talking about TNA, uh, Bobby Roode is still running as your champ in 2012. And the TNA namesake is kind of being slowly transitioned away from TNA and into Impact Wrestling. But over the years, they would go back and forth. They would go back to TNA. They would say, no, we're Impact. No, we're Impact Wrestling. That's something they... The TNA name is so silly because we know what they're doing. 
We know that we they say it's total nonstop action, but we know, you know, what you're getting at there. You're slapping us in the face with your innuendo. It, it's just, and I think it turned off a lot of like ad, potential advertisers for them over the years. I think it caused caused them more harm than good. Just having that TNA name over the years. Just looking back on it, it seems like a silly thing to. Uh, you know, silly brand to put on your company. I mean, I was never a big fan of the TNA moniker in general, especially when when you you spell it out. Obviously, it's total nonstop action, which just sounds silly to me. And, and there's nothing having to do with wrestling in there. They could have been TNW and been had a significantly better name. Um, but when you look at WWE World Wrestling Entertainment. You know what kind of company they are. All Elite Wrestling. You know what kind of company they are. If you had to think of total nonstop action, I really wouldn't know unless you know who they were. Well, at this point in 2012, TNA is still live every Thursday, which is – we'll see how that changes you know, from where we are in, in 2020 here. Uh, TNA is not doing live shows in 2020, but that they were still live back in uh, 2012, and they are still on – the most prominent network that they had ever been on, and that's on Spike Network, and they're still doing decent numbers. They're doing around a million uh, viewers, plus the amount that they get on the the replays that they would do each week. So is Spike still a channel. Uh, Spike is the Paramount Network now. Okay. <laughs> so it's the same company, but it's it's called the Paramount Network. So they still do like Bellator on there, but it's not like. In, it was guy TV, Spike yep. TV. It's for guys, no chicks allowed. It was like the He-Man Women, women Haters Club. I mean, That's I think Spike they TV had was. like right after when WWE was on Spike TV, didn't they have the really cool like Bot Wars or whatever, mm-hmm. like those kind of shows? Yeah, I, I miss those days. And they did. Uh, that's where the uh, Ultimate Fighter. Uh, show got started. That's uh, right. It came on right after Raw, so you had kind of had that that similar audience that kind of le- led in to the Ultimate Fighter, and that Ultimate Fighter reality show is really what catapulted the UFC to ended up being sold for four billion dollars. You know, several years later, that was the the genesis of it being on Spike TV and and having benefiting from having that WWE lead in. That that. Uh first season with Forrest Griffin and Stefan Bonner was just incredible for UFC. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have gone better. Uh, TNA in 2012 had Austin Aries introducing Option C, something that's still around here in 2020, where the X Division champ could cash in the X Division title for a shot at the world title at the Dex- Destination X pay-per-view. And Austin Aries actually beat Bobby Roode at the July pay-per-view to win the title, ending Roode's almost nine-month run. I'll tell you what, man, I loved, I thought Austin Aries as TNA champion was one of the more compelling uh, runs that TNA had had in the time that I've been watching them. It just seemed, I don't know why, but it just seemed so different. Do you remember anything about the Austin Aries run in TNA? I think in general, you know, even though Austin Aries has been known as a difficult man to work with in 
wrestling. Uh, I think that in general, I've always enjoyed just about everything that Austin Aries has done. And, and I've talked to different promoters, and they always say that um, even though he's known as a difficult guy, he is a wrestling genius, and just the things that he knows to do is fantastic. And, and this definitely was prominent during that run um, when – you know, you saw him as, as the champion. I, I was a big fan of his belt collector gimmick when he was champion there, too. I think he's just always knows how to get himself over in the, in the right ways there. We talked about some of the good stuff that was going on in TNA. Uh, here's some of the bad stuff that was going on in 2012. No, this is the best stuff. What do you mean? <laughs> I don't know, man. Uh, so Kazarian and Daniel start a rumor that AJ Styles and Dixie Carter are having an affair. You know, because you know AJ's a married man, Doug. And then the story changes that AJ was cheating on his wife with this Claire Lynch character, and that Claire Lynch is pregnant with AJ's baby. Do you remember anything about this Claire Lynch storyline in 2012? Because it was the shits. That 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 wasn't real. That I mean, that, I thought that was all real. I know you were so engrossed in this storyline <laughs> that you couldn't tell fantasy from reality. But Doug, this was terrible. Oh my god! AJ Styles is a God-fearing Christian, and, and you know is still in. And he always talks about how he loves his wife. This is something that is just the farthest thing from reality with him, which is probably another reason why it really just did not work. No, it did not work at all. But Bound for Glory actually did work for TNA this year. They draw a good crowd of nearly 3,000 uh, in October. I think it was in uh, Phoenix or the Phoenix area. But Jeff Hardy defeated Austin Aries for the title. And I thought this was a big mistake personally, man. I thought Austin Aries had a ton of momentum. I thought he was kind of steering the company in the right direction. And taking the title off of Austin Aries and putting it on Jeff Hardy and rolling with Jeff Hardy for the rest of 2012 nothing against Jeff Hardy but where Austin Aries was in his career and with his character and how he was steering the ship for this company I thought they were on a unique track and I thought that putting it back on a WWE retread like Jeff Hardy kind of made them take a step back I really don't know why Impact Wrestling puts so much stock into Jeff Hardy, especially with all of the known issues that he had. Uh, they they definitely should have, as you said, kept the momentum going with, with Austin Aries and see what they got with him and, and, and see really if a quote-unquote homegrown with Aries could catapult the company into really, I mean, if you take a look in, in the recent history in the last couple of years, Austin Aries was a very prominent role into bringing Impact Wrestling into the next decade. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Ring of Honor in 2012. We've got Davey Richards still your Ring of Honor champ until June, so he would hold that title for almost a whole year. And in June, Kevin Steen, now known as Kevin Owens, would defeat Davey Richards for his first and only run as Ring of Honor champion. Uh, in December, uh, Kevin Steen would defeat El Generico at Ladder Wars 4, and this was Generico's last Ring of Honor match before he would get signed by WWE, lose his mat, lose his mask, and become the man that we know today as Sami Zayn. So we got to see uh, Generico's last Ring of Honor match in 2012. But this was just a time that, for me. I put in the notes that Ring of Honor was gaining more momentum and starting to challenge 
TNA as that possible number two company. And Ring of Honor is just, as we go through these years here, we're going to see that they're just picking up more momentum and they're reloading. When they're losing guys, they're not, you know, saying, pressing the oh shit button and saying that, uh, you know, we're in trouble here. Kind of like what Ring of Honor is doing in 2020. Back in 2012, they were just reloading. They were just bringing in more guys, next man up. In 2020, that's really not the case, and I, that's why I think that Ring of Honor has kind of fallen back into the middle of the pack uh, in the new uh, decade. Yeah, I, I know that you love that they're led by guys like Matt Taven uh, going into the My future. My favorite. My favorite. <laughs> but He's the best. I think that... The only time that Ring of Honor probably did do that and was guilty of that is when pretty much the elite left, and then a lot of wrestling fans felt like there was really no real reason. I mean, uh, we asked this question quite a bit last year after the elite left as to what's the reason for anybody to watch Ring of Honor? Marty Skrull? I mean, Marty Skrull's fantastic, but the way that they built him or lack thereof and kind of dropped the ball on him really didn't make him a draw or a star to be able to have people watch Ring of Honor. Not to mention that, and we've talked about this, you and I, uh, ad nauseum, what channel is Ring of Honor on now? And and at the time, um, yeah, I see you scratching your head there. Gun to my (laughs) head? Uh, I don't know, Doug. I'm going to just pull the trigger. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, at, at, at the time... Uh, I know that they were a little bit more prominent. They they had a couple more channels that you could find them on. Um, fun fact, by the way, El Generico uh, making that change to Sami Zayn. If you take a look at El Generico's mask, there there's a very prominent S-Z on his mask that now form a Sami Zayn. If you don't believe me, go look it up. I did not know that. There's fun facts for no and tell with uh, Dougie Wrestling here on the Rhino Wrestling <laughs> Review. I love it. Uh, so 2012 in the WWE. Now I got to tell you, Doug, I was in the house for the Royal Rumble in 2012 in St. Louis, where Sheamus won the worst Royal Rumble that I can remember watching in my lifetime. I got to see it live. My whole life, I had wanted the Royal Rumble had always been my favorite pay-per-view, and then it finally came to town. I was finally going to get to see a Royal Rumble live, and the only cool surprise they had was Karma, who's uh, known as Awesome Kong, and she came out in the in the Royal Rumble, and I think that was her only appearance with the WWE. I think she she came out and she w- had supposedly signed a contract, but I think she might have got pregnant uh, shortly thereafter, and then never came back with the company. But we got to see Michael Cole in the Royal Rumble that year. We got to see Jerry Lawler in the Royal Rumble that year. Hacksaw Jim Duggan was in the Royal Rumble that year. Uh, who was uh, Alberto Del Rio's uh, announcer? Ricardo Rodriguez. He on, was man. in the Royal Rumble. <laughs> Those were the cool surprises that we get. We thought we were going to get like Goldberg. We thought we were going to get Brock Lesnar. We didn't get any of that stuff. And we got. Uh, it came down to Sheamus and Chris Jericho, and uh, Sheamus was victorious. I mean, 
I can't hate on Seamus now uh, because, for one, he's a universally liked guy backstage. You know, people tend to uh, respect him backstage. And since his time in the bar with Cesaro, he's definitely shown this guy can go and be significantly more prominent in the ring. But at those times, it was definitely the worst of times for Seamus. He just wasn't finding his place. And the fact that they made him win the Royal Rumble was just, I mean, that's that's the definition of the crowd goes mild. Yeah, I was there. I was one of the mild ones. I, I got to <laughs> tell you, it was it was not uh, it was not great. But uh, one positive thing that came out of this Sheamus Royal Rumble victory is that he would go on to face Daniel Bryan for the uh, WWE. I guess it was the World Heavyweight Championship, the big gold belt that yep. Daniel Bryan had, and. Sheamus would defeat Daniel Bryan in 18 seconds on the pre-show of WrestleMania. Now, this is where the yes chance that Daniel Bryan had been doing kind of started that the fans had hated for so long. I think the fans really started to change their minds about Daniel Bryan. Uh, it kind of had a weird effect after this 18-second loss at WrestleMania. Can you kind of explain the, the theory behind uh, how that all happened? Well, so here's the thing is Daniel Bryan was highly regarded as one of the best technical wrestlers in the world before that, especially with Ring of Honor. I mean, Ring of Honor has a, a and, and, and um, there are awards that go on as far as best technical wrestler in the world um, and, and which is now known as the Brian Danielson Award. So the fact is that he has been heavily respected over the years and there, there are always glimpses of really great things happening with him. And, you know, we've seen him uh, obviously win the money in the bank and be the champion and those kind of things to the point where we saw a match like that. And I think it was almost like to give you an example, uh, Braun Strowman versus Roman Reigns in the Royal Rumble or even Rusev versus Roman Reigns in the Royal Rumble. The people that got over was the person that was against Roman Reigns. Mm -hmm. And similarly, Sheamus was the not popular choice to win that Royal Rumble. Um, and, I mean, essentially, that led to people cheering on Daniel Bryan, people being on his side, people revolting against what the WWE was doing, and leading to uh, the, the rise of the Yes Movement. So the, the fans kind of start to get behind the yes chance a little bit, but Daniel's still a heel, so he starts nixing them with the no chant, which just makes the fans want to chant yes even more. And uh, <laughs> that eventually leads to a really cool uh, part of Daniel Bryan's history where he eventually teams with Kane and uh, becomes Team Hell No. And... Uh, that was just uh, just one of the uh, little pit stops on the uh, the rise of Daniel Bryan. That you can't talk about Daniel Bryan in the WWE without at least mentioning his relationship and his history with Kane, right? I mean, uh, those two in the ring and, and their promos together just were magic. From going the whole "I am the tag team champions" to their their therapy with uh, what? If you can enlighten me, what's the name of that doctor again? Doc, oh, Doctor Shelby. Doctor Shelby. Very good. I was just say <laughs> say Doctor Feelgood. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Doctor Shelby with that whole thing. Um, their whole segment where they were in the cafe, um, really going with the Harry uh, when Harry met Sally, May Young kind of coming out and saying, "I'll have what they're having." They, they just had a lot of. <laughs> 
really magical moments together that were just so silly but just so good. And again, it's one of those things that reminds you this is why you like pro wrestling. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, looking back, wrestling wasn't always garbage. It's sometimes yeah, no, fun. I mean, the, this moment is great. We're great. <laughs> it's sometimes fun. Uh, the Undertaker challenges Triple H to a WrestleMania rematch because he was unhappy with being carted off the previous year. And Triple H agrees under Hell in a Cell stipulations with HBK as the referee. Man, hell of a match. Uh, again, the, the fourth year, fourth match in a row that Undertaker has uh, had a match of the year candidate at WrestleMania against either Shawn Michaels or Triple H. Where do you rank this Hell in a Cell match with, with Triple H and then also the moment that the three had at the top of the stage, at the top of the ramp? Kind of, They call it the end of an era moment where Triple H, Undertaker, and Shawn Michaels are, are arm in arm. Where do you rank the Hell in a Cell match as far as those four, between the two Shawn Michaels and the two Triple H matches? To me, it was between all those four, the second best match of the four, with WrestleMania 20, 25 being the number one, this being the second best, uh, WrestleMania uh, 26, uh, with Shawn Michaels being the third best, and then, of course, the other Triple H match being the fourth best, yep. all of which were really good. I think the only thing that tarnishes this end of an era match is kind of looking back at it because this, for me, well, first and foremost, this definitely could have been a moment where Triple H could have won and I would have been happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Triple H could have easily ended the Undertaker's streak. It's something, and it, and it wasn't his second match with the Undertaker at WrestleMania. I believe he had one around WrestleMania 12 or, 13, or no, uh, I think it was like. 15 or 16 yeah. uh, with The Undertaker um, that went kind of all over the arena and that, that was a really fun match um, but they had a lot of history together clearly with the match the previous year um, it could have been a match where both guys careers could have ended and again looking back I feel like the fact that they just continued after such a monumental moment where they had the three of them hugging each other and calling it an end of an era and then nothing changed the following year where they were just all, you know, still prominent, you know, members of the roster. I feel like that could have just ended there. But such amazing moments, including one of my favorites when uh, Shawn Michaels super kicked The Undertaker and thinking <laughs> that that might have been the end. That yep. was definitely a jump out of my seat moment. The Rock would defeat John Cena at the main event of WrestleMania 28, which was. To me, at the time, a very big surprise. I didn't think there was any way that The Rock was going over at, at Mania 28, even though it was in Miami, uh, one of his, one of his uh, places he calls home. Uh, this match was billed as once-in-a-lifetime, Doug, which means that, of course, we got a, a rematch between the two the next year. Do you think they knew going into that that they were going to have that second match? I feel like that's the only reason that The Rock ended up being victorious. I you would think that they would have, if the, if the Rock's winning, you would think that there would have to be some, you know, the return match somewhere down the line. But if that's the case, why call it once in a lifetime? I don't get it. <laughs> Great marketing, man. I yeah, I guess. Uh, so the the one year build concludes with the Rock defeating John Cena. The night after WrestleMania, Brock Lesnar returns to uh, take out John Cena. John Cena's kind of down on his luck after losing to The Rock, and even more down on his luck after Brock Lesnar comes out and squashes him at the end of Raw. 
first time Brock Lesnar is back in the company after his UFC run and the, the brief uh, attempt to make an NFL team. Uh, first time Brock Lesnar is back in eight years, and here we are in 2020, and he's still the champ. Yeah, I mean, uh, Brock Lesnar failed with joining the Minnesota Vikings, and then we had that moment at Monday Night Raw, which people were chanting for Brock Lesnar, so you know, clearly it had gotten out that um, something was happening to him, whether it was re-signing or he was backstage or whatever it may have been. Um, that was also the moment that for those that know the Brock Lesnar guy, uh, the, the guy always in the crowd and that... Uh, um, Ed Hardy shirt or Affliction shirt or whatever it might be doing that pose. Um, <laughs> that's the moment, you know, Brock Lesnar coming back was that moment where we, where we saw that. Uh, and then, of course, we don't know what he's going to do, but you know it's Brock Lesnar. He comes in the ring, F5s the hell out of John Cena. Uh, Cena wins the Money in the Bank uh, contract later that year. CM Punk is still your champ, but he's not headlining any of the pay-per-views. What's going on with CM Punk in 2012 that he's having this historic run, but he's not headlining any of the pay-per-views? So that was one of the most annoying things for me from 2012 is that even though CM Punk was the champion, one of the most winningest champ in the last 25 years, uh, WWE still refused to pull the trigger and taking Cena out of the spotlight to build brand new stars. Um, Cena was definitely main eventing, uh, you know, shows. One, one of the most prominent ones uh, for me was Over the Edge 2012. Uh, I'm sorry, Over the Limit 2012 when, when CM Punk went against Daniel Bryan uh, for the WWE Championship. And that match to me was an incredible, incredible match. And and really what we saw an indie wrestling match take place in the WWE. And that match was overshadowed by Team John Laurinaitis, I believe, versus Team John Cena with uh, Team Johnny tr uh, being pulled out of power by, by Team John Cena. Um, if, if you guys get a chance, go watch that pay-per-view over just for the sake of uh, Daniel, Daniel Bryan versus CM Punk putting on that classic. But... Uh, yeah, it, it was a big shame to see uh, CM Punk not in many main events uh, from there. I'll tell you what, Doug. Uh, if if John Laurinaitis is on a pay-per-view, uh, he's going to be uh, headlining. Uh, I don't know. It, what I, was it, people power? People power. Power to the people. <laughs> yeah, uh, just you take the good with the bad, I guess. But CM Punk, he's having feuds with Ziggler. He's having feuds with Team Hell No, but n most notably, a returning Chris Jericho, a returning heel Chris Jericho, who would actually reference Punk's uh, family history of alcohol and drug abuse in the feud. I remember uh, times where he was pouring alcohol on CM Punk. Uh, it some cringeworthy moments in there, but I mean, it's heel Chris Jericho, so you know he must know what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, those two definitely had a really fun uh, uh, feud going from there. And, and at Mania, uh, a pretty good match, I believe it was. Uh, a, was that a ladder match, if I'm not mistaken, between uh, Punk and Jericho? I believe they had uh, some moments on a ladder, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, yeah, I definitely enjoyed that. I definitely enjoyed um, all uh, of Punk's feuds. You know, you mentioned his, his stuff with Jericho. Uh, I'm sorry, with, with Ziggler, but... Uh, 
I definitely liked the realism and kudos to CM Punk for letting Jericho pour if that was real alcohol on his head. Yeah, that was uh, it was uh, like I said, cringeworthy to a, to a point, but sometimes cringeworthy is a little bit okay in, in wrestling. Sometimes it kind of adds another layer to it. Uh, like you said, Punk beat Jericho at Mania and ended the feud in a Chicago street fight at Extreme Rules. You didn't happen to be in the crowd uh, in 2012, were you? That was one I was not at, unfortunately. Uh, I, I wish that I was. That would have been a pretty cool match to be in. Uh, something, be I was, uh, something I was at was Raw 1000 took place in St. Louis in 2012. I got the t-shirt to prove it. Uh, the Rock came back and said, announced that he was going to be challenging for the WWE title at the Royal Rumble. Uh, Cena cashed in his money in the bank. He had uh, let Punk know a week in advance that he was going to do it because he's a babyface, Doug. He's got to let you know in advance when he's cashing in. He can't take advantage of it. Uh, cashed in the money in the bank but loses by DQ when the big show interferes. Your boy, who's back in 2020. <laughs> Uh, the Rock comes out to save John Cena from uh, the Big Show attack, but CM Punk turns heel and attacks The Rock, setting up The that Rock. That was an amazing and, uh, moment. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, he hit him with that uh, jumping clothesline that he does. The Rock was going for the uh, people's elbow, I think, people's on elbow. Big Show. Yeah. Uh, very cool moment uh, to see, and uh, that becomes uh, the the. Uh, emergence of uh, he, uh, CM Punk returning to his heel roots, and uh, one unfortunate uh, f- byproduct of this Raw 1000, although it was a, a fun show and a nostalgic show, this was the start of the three-hour Raw. This show was three hours, and they said, <laughs> you know what, we're going to do three hours all the time, and man, it has just been frustrating ever since they've gone to the three-hour format. I mean, you'd have to think that they must really be making a crap ton of money on a a three-hour format to be able to take just a huge drop in what their actual product is. Uh, And to think that, I mean, they they have to be able to be happy with the quality of their product being so much lower to be able to have a three-hour product. So the Punk storyline says that he's basically kind of uh, referencing what we're feeling as fans that he's being overshadowed despite being champ and he ends up aligning himself with Paul Heyman and another person who we kind of mentioned earlier with the uh, NXT invasion starts to get over big time as a babyface and that's Ryback Ryback has a long undefeated streak he's getting uh, mentioned in uh, the world title picture with some world title opportunities and we actually have Punk, Ryback and Cena main event at Survivor Series. So, what do you remember about the emergence of Ryback in 2012? Well, if I'm not mistaken, CM Punk as champion um, ended up having the a match against John Cena scheduled uh, for a, I believe it was inside of a cage or something to that extent, uh, but John Cena was injured at the time and could not partake in that, so he had to name his replacement for that and it ended up being Ryback and, and this was kind of a shame for Ryback because Ryback was organically getting over at the time as a big baby face and it unfortunately led to him being uh, really just thrust into a limelight that he was not ready for and they shouldn't have really done that to him because again he uh, 
yeah, I mean, it was just very, very shameful of him. But um, that also led to that uh, triple threat match between the two that you mentioned um, that ended up with the emergence of the, the lights going out and the emergence of the shield, uh, taking on and powerbombing right back through the table, going in and taking out John Cena, uh, which ended up leading to CM Punk retaining that championship there. What a moment in 2012, the first time we get to see the shield on uh, uh, WWE programming, and that leads to TLC in December, which is the Shield's in-ring debut. They take on Ryback and Team Hell No, and uh, they are victorious in their in-ring debut, and it is just the start of many successes for that trio to come. When we look at 2020, they are all in very prominent roles with uh, two different companies at this point, with Dean Ambrose uh, going back to his John Moxley moniker and uh, being in the main event picture in AEW, but Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns both being in the main event picture on WWE programming. Uh, and for the foreseeable future, I can't imagine any of these three guys not being big names in their respective companies. Fun fact, uh, Roman Reigns was actually not supposed to be in The Shield originally, uh, but was pushed a little bit by... Uh, WWE, Vince McMahon, and The Rock, of course, because Roman Reigns is the cousin of uh, Dwayne Johnson. The original third member was supposed to be Cassius Ono, a.k.a. Chris Hero. Uh, but that ended up changing the the role there. But, um, you know, the, the Shield definitely being uh, one of the most prominent and, and biggest factions in the history of wrestling, and not just because they tell us that over and over, but because they actually are. Uh, and yeah, you mentioned you know Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins now being at the top of the card consistently. Now I heard my sources tell me that the original third member was supposed to be Ed Leslie, aka Brutus the Barber Beefcake. So <laughs> that's just what my sources are. But again, my sources are uh, my dogs, so I, I I wouldn't trust any of them. Uh, is, is that like your slang term for your uh, your your good friends? You know, they're my, my dogs. My dogs, yeah, my dogs, and they're always they're always <laughs> drunk, and uh, so I I don't trust them either. Uh, also on that card, we had uh, Cody Rhodes. It's fun to look back at 2012, and Cody Rhodes was teamed with Damian Sandow. They were Team Rhodes scholars, Doug. Do you remember Team oh, Road Scholars? <laughs> they Do you became, remember Damian Sandow might be a better question. Uh, uh, I <laughs> I loved Damian Sandow, and Damian Sandow oh, uh, he was amazing. Uh, is now on, uh, if you watch NWA, he's on uh, on NWA now, oh. kind of having a, uh, a a little bit of a career resurgence after uh, some stop, stops and goes along the way. Uh, NXT at the time in 2012 was getting revamped. Uh, they were becoming uh, more of a developmental show where they were mixing the FCW and main roster talent. They were uh, begin taping at Full Sail University, which they're still at in Orlando, Florida. But they were not doing a live show. They were taping four weeks at a time. Uh, FCW is going to end up going away. NXT is now officially the developmental and in July of 2012, the NXT title would be introduced. And the first winner of that tournament, prior to him coming in with the Shield, would be Seth Rollins. And uh, Seth Rollins carries that title for about five months, all the way up to he would lose it right before he would debut with the Shield at uh, TLC. 
I think he lost it to Big E Langston, if I'm not mistaken. He sure did. Very uh, good. Which, which, <laughs> which is uh, pretty interesting considering that now, obviously, Big E uh, is one of the most winningest tag team champions, but still has yet to have a significant uh, world title or even really singles title. I think he was like intercontinental champion for like half a minute. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'd I, I love to know that history with, with NXT, especially transitioning. I mean, the Shield and company, uh, including guys like the Wyatt family, were some of the last guys in FCW when they transitioned to NXT. Uh, I know that uh, there, there were a lot of guys down there that were some of the best class coming up into what we know now from NXT. So uh, moving into 2013, your Billboard Song of the Year, Thrift Shop by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. You like you some Macklemore, Doug? Uh, you know, I'm, I am actually familiar with this song. I was trying to think of how it goes uh, before we hopped on and started this conversation. <laughs> uh, and and uh, all I remember was, uh, you know, talking about wearing my grandpa's clothes or uh-huh. something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it was about like I mean, how you could go to the thrift shop and you could, uh, you know, get, you know, blinged out and pimped out for, you know, on a budget. So, you know, that, that's my I mean, kind of shopping right there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really reminiscent to what I think. It, this could also be Thrift Shop, the story of the Dan, of Dan Rhino. So. Yeah, I would think so. It really connected with me. So 2013 was a big year for me. Uh, the Oscar winner for Best Picture was another movie that I have not seen, Argo. The Ben Affleck movie. Yeah, I actually... I mean, you could have told me that it was Ben Affleck or somebody else, and I wouldn't have known the difference. <laughs> okay. Uh, talk about some New Japan in 2013. Wrestle Kingdom 7 takes place. We've got Prince Devitt, a.k.a. Finn Balor, retaining his IWGP Junior Heavyweight title over Kota Ibushi. So we get that uh, uh, match that we would love to see again in 2020. We got it again back in uh, 2013. It was actually uh, Kota Ibushi and Low-Key in a, uh, a three-way match. Nakamura is still running strong in New Japan, uh, defeats Sakuraba to retain the Intercontinental Championship, and Okada gets his Wrestle Kingdom main event, the first of many for Okada, and uh, in a losing effort to Tanahashi, as Tanahashi retains his heavyweight title. But uh, probably the most important thing that happened in New Japan starts in May, when Prince Devitt turns on his friend Taguchi and joins fellow foreigners Carl Anderson, Bad Luck Fale, and Tama Tonga to form. Yes, Doug's giving me the uh, 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 the gu- finger guns right now. I tried the to double think of gun. A, I was trying to think of a non-sexual way to say that uh, <laughs> to form the Bullet Club. And by the end of the year. The Bullet Club uh, would be joined by the Young Bucks. They'd be joined by Doc Gallows after his contract with TNA expired. And Bullet Club becomes a, a game changer in the world of pro wrestling, not just for merchandise sales, but becomes the, the coolest thing in pro wrestling for the next several years. I mean, the Bullet Club, obviously, I think it originally really started just by all these guys that legitimately hung out. It was a lot of the guys that spoke English, known as, the, I believe, the Gajans. Yeah, the Gajans. Uh, in, the world of, uh, in, in the world of Japan. And, and all these guys just got all put together. Um, 
the Young Bucks obviously had their so successful run in uh, in TNA. I believe they were Generation Me, <laughs> and they oh, ended up God. coming over to <laughs> New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, and even though they weren't part of the initial iteration. Uh, of the Bullet Club, as you mentioned, shortly thereafter they joined and really became a staple as far as the Bullet Club. And uh, from there on out, up until obviously they left New Japan for wrestling to form AEW, they were part of every single iteration thereafter. Um, you know, the the, uh, the the making of Carl Anderson and Doc Gallows really now, uh, obviously now known as the OC, the original club, the only club that matters, the show that was on the CW or whatever it was back in the day. Uh, those guys, Doc Gallows um, and Carl Anderson, one of the most notable tag teams in all of Japan, along with the Young Bucks. Uh, I mean, these guys just formed this incredible stable that saw so many different guys come through it, including guys like Adam Cole, Marty Skrull, AJ Styles, and the list just goes on and on and on. Yeah, it's, it's really a like I said, a game changer in the world of pro wrestling. And you mentioned the Young Bucks in TNA, another team that they they really missed yeah. the boat on. Uh, and uh, you, you think about that, that dream roster that, that, that TNA had there for a little while. Add the Young Bucks to that list as well. Uh, speaking of TNA, Jeff Hardy enters the year as TNA champ. And this is when the Aces and Eight storyline is very prevalent in TNA. And the big mystery about who is the president, who is the leader of Aces and Eights. Were you familiar with that Aces and Eights storyline in, in TNA? Because I actually kind of enjoyed it as it was going along. Yeah, actually, I, I was out of TNA most of 2011 and 2012 with knowing a bunch of things. Aces and Eights brought me back to watching TNA for a little bit of time. Um, they were pretty interesting in the beginning uh, when they were kind of getting all these guys together. They got Taz as part of everything there. Uh, they had They had a lot of... You know, they, they had almost that NWO feel in the beginning uh, when NWO was cool, but yeah. then ended up with that NWO feel at the end when they just initiated everybody and it became too much of a cluster, you know what. That is a great point because the, I had in the notes that the story started off cool, but it ended. they ended up having members like Wes Briscoe, they had Garrett Bischoff, uh, Tito Ortiz was brought in, uh, just a lot of just... It, it got too watered down. It got too overbooked. The cool part of it was that Bully Ray was a babyface at the time. Ends up that he was the uh, leader of the Aces and Eights all along. Ends up challenging uh, Jeff Hardy for the title at Lockdown. That's where it's revealed that he is the leader of Aces and Eights. He turns heel. He wins the title. And Bully Ray is having his first major success in his career as a singles wrestler and becomes the TNA champ. I thought this was, you know, maybe the best work that he had done in his career, especially as a singles wrestler in TNA. Bully Ray, obviously previously known as Bubba Ray, uh, I mean, who he is now, um, it is really was really made as when he had that run in Aces and Eights as, as heel Bully Ray. Not only was he jacked at the time and in the best shape of his life when he was uh, Bully Ray in Aces and Eights, but he was really able to reveal significantly more of his personality and his charisma and just that kind of 
it, it really brought me back to the old ECW days where he was a guy that you wanted to jump over the rails and punch him in the mouth because yeah. he was such a jag that, that he was just, I mean, he knows how to get heat. Uh, I mentioned him a couple of times before, you know, I'm a big fan of Busted Open Radio and he's just amazing on there. His analysis, I mean, I, I think that he's a wrestling genius and he really was able to show um, how he did that. And he continues to show that in Ring of Honor over the last several years uh, in, in storylines that are prevalent with guys like Flip Gordon going into All In. Uh, Kurt Angle is in and out of storylines in 2013 in TNA. He enters rehab after a DUI mishap. Uh, AJ Styles, we talked about missed opportunities. He wins the title in October but vacates it due, due to a legit contract dispute. Uh, I put in the notes, classic TNA. They've got a guy that they could build a co- build a company around and is going to go down as one of the greatest in-ring wrestlers of all time and they just can't can't come up with enough money to give him so they put the title on magnus and uh magnus uh known today as nick aldis uh your nwa champion uh and who's who's having some of his best work by the way uh, that he's had um you know as as nick aldis ever since uh he was made prevalent going into all in with this feud with cody to you know now and everything you're seeing on power yeah, man, I I like Nick Aldis so much now compared to what he was as Magnus in TNA. Yep. He, I don't know if he just wasn't ready for that, that title run or if he just hadn't found his character yet. But the way he carries himself now, the way he wears the suits, the way he, you know, carry, even the way he he holds the title, you know, when he's doing interviews and cutting promos. Maybe he's just found himself now, but I think back in 2013, it just was a lackluster run in TNA. And uh, TNA as a company has now switched from being live to now they're live every other week. They're taping two shows at a time to save money. And kind of starting between that and the AJ Styles contract thing, kind of starting to show uh, some lack of financial flexibility here in 2013, which is not a good thing. Of course, uh, unconfirmed, but these are all the times that people were talking about not be that TNA wasn't able to pay people. Yes, yes. Um, you know the, the the payments or paychecks were were late or backdated or people couldn't cash them. Those kind of things. So um, it, it was definitely an interesting time that you know not a lot of people were watching TNA at this time. Like I said, you know Ace and the Nades brought me back, but it was very short lived as far as the interest within that because they just couldn't book themselves into a good storyline nope they they came it's almost like they accidentally came across a pot of gold and then just they couldn't find where they where they kept it you know they just they just lost it or they blew it all on a sports car uh they had you know something that was very intriguing and then just didn't know what to do with it uh moving on to ring of honor uh kevin steen still your champ until april he holds that title for almost a year and in april jay briscoe of the Briscoe Brothers, who has always been a tag team specialist, defeats Kevin Steen for his first of two uh, runs as Ring of Honor champ. And like I said, as TNA seems to be losing momentum, Ring of Honor is ramping things up. They're reloading whenever they lose talent. And like we mentioned before, that's something they're not doing today. 
Uh, Briscoe gets stripped of the belt for a storyline injury three months later. We have a tournament for the vacant belt, which is won by for the his first of three eventual title runs. Adam Cole, baby! His baby. first run as Ring of Honor champ. And he would go on to hold that belt for nine months. And uh, a tag team that you mentioned earlier that uh, is very prominent in... Uh, on, TN, or on NXT right now as the Undisputed Era, Red Dragon of Bobby Fish and Kyle O'Reilly is having some classic matches with the American Wolves. Man, Ring of Honor's just got a, a stacked roster. Michael Elgin's there. Jay Lethal's there. Mike Bennett and Maria Kanellis are there. ACH is there before he lost his mind. Uh, all these guys are in Ring of Honor at the time. Really on the, the uptick uh, here in 2013. I mean, Ring of Honor, over the, like, if you take a look at that, and over the course of the last five to ten years, had just consistently uh, had stars upon stars upon stars, and, and future stars, really, uh, in a lot of their roster, you know, starting with guys like. Um, Daniel Bryan, CM Punk, you know, you saw Samoa Joe in Ring of Honor for in there. Um, you know, going into guys like Michael Elgin, ACH, uh, you know, all these guys that are just now just big deals. And again, there there are other ones that just for whatever reason, Ring of Honor always seemed to find really good talent, and they they almost became like a a feeder talent to the stars, so to speak. You know, a feeder roster and and um, you know, WWE definitely noticed them, and they they pretty much continuously, you know, raided their roster over the years. Cleaned them out, man. I I I went to a Ring of Honor show that I, I ended up buying the DVD for because usually when they do a live show, you can buy the DVD on their website, and it was a 2009 show, and I mean, it had uh Seth Rollins, it had Roderick Strong, it had Cesaro, it had uh, Cassius Ono, it had uh, Kevin Steen, it had El Generico, uh, it had all of these, uh, you know, future main eventers that that WWE just snatched, 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 snatched up, and but at the time they were just Next man up. All right, who's who's next? It's going to take over, take the ball and run with it. And you know they were doing great things in in 2013. Uh, moving on to WWE, John Cena wins the Royal Rumble in 2013. The Rock ends Punk's title run, which I know something Doug is really happy about. Uh, your <laughs> your boy CM Punk loses his belt, uh, I believe, to the People's Elbow uh, at uh, the Royal yep. Rumble that year. And that sets up Rock and John Cena at Mania, which I thought was once in a lifetime, but I guess is twice in a lifetime now. I mean, they didn't learn their lesson with their match in the first one and then had an even more lackluster match in the second <laughs> one where uh, The Rock ended up, uh, I believe it was, you know, breaking some ribs or you know, tearing some muscle tore, off the yeah, rib. And tore a pack or something like that, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Um, and, and you can see it in him holding that area when he's holding up the uh, the title and John Cena's hand. He, I mean, he's uh, you know, kudos to him, even though he was blown up, you know, it, it, during that match. He uh, he continued and he persevered to be able to at least finish it. So speaking about CM Punk, even though his title reign ends, 
he starts feuding with The Undertaker. And I'm curious to, to see what you think, you being the CM Punk historian that you are. Your thoughts on his feud with The Undertaker. Uh, Paul Bearer had recently passed away, and CM Punk stole the urn, supposedly with the, the ashes of Paul Bearer inside. Uh, what were your thoughts of that feud leading into WrestleMania and then the actual match that they had with Undertaker going over at Mania that year? So, so this was one of the biggest, you know, angering things that CM Punk had during that time. Um, he had suggested to Vince many, many times to, hey, let me lose the title at, you know, WrestleMania. Let's make it a triple threat match. You know, let, let's. Um, let me insert myself. Let me be that heel. Let me, you know, it's, I don't even have to win. I don't even have to, I mean, have anybody pin me, you know, have me, you know, put me into that, that title match. But obviously, um, you know, Vince had that mentality of twice in a lifetime. So Mm -hmm. at the time going into that feud with the undertaker, uh, uh, people were just kind of upset about it and underwhelmed. The undertaker was obviously on his way out and, and on some of his last legs. And as horrible as this is going to be for me to say, the the thing that really sparked the feud and the storyline between CM Punk and The Undertaker to make it more interesting was the passing of Paul Bearer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we we saw the tribute uh, of The Undertaker to Paul Bearer at the start of Monday Night Raw. You know, The Undertaker came out and there was an urn on a stool in the middle of the ring. And um, as the the picture of Paul Bearer came up, um, under, and Undertaker did his, his kneeling salute, uh, giving praise to Paul Bearer, which I will not lie to you, made a tear come to my eye. We heard the... And followed by the cult of personality yeah. and CM Punk coming up, ruining that moment. And then having one of my favorite lines that CM Punk said um, in, in the history of, of CM Punk, which was, I'm sorry for your loss at WrestleMania coming up, which was just <laughs> so awesome, <laughs> um, which obviously, you know, it, it was a way to further the storyline um, according to the dirt sheets that are out there, Paul Bear's family, you know, they really approved of, of this whole thing to be able to do that because, uh, you know, obviously Paul Bear would want that to continue. Um, again, a really unfortunate thing to happen, but uh, a, a very, very interesting and um, main event level feud and match came out of it. Yeah, so despite the high profile match, you could kind of start to see the the seeds sowing of Punk's displeasure with the company, whether it's, you know, losing to The Rock, uh, you know, losing the, the belt that he had held for over a year to a part-timer, to not having a, uh, quote-unquote, the main event match at, at WrestleMania, something that he, he would talk about throughout the years. But it, you kind of start to see the the writing on the wall with CM Punk and and some of the things that that we're going to see in in the near future are going to uh, make them make a lot more sense you know based on what we saw back here in 2013 uh, another thing that was going on was uh, an interesting storyline with Jack Swagger he gets partnered with Zeb Coulter as Doug gives the uh, we the P- 
We the People is dead. It was a it was a byproduct of bad booking, Doug, and it's dead. Chris Jericho <laughs> said so. No more We the People. It's Stop bad booking it. by bad writers. That storyline <laughs> is gone. <laughs> he he killed the crowd. Like he shut them down right away. Jericho's the best at that. Uh, Jack, Jack Swagger's partnered with Zeb Coulter, and they're kind of doing this like anti-immigration uh, gimmick, and it actually starts to get really good heat. Uh, Jack Swagger with Zeb Coulter starts to get over uh, as a heel really well, but then there's this Fox News blowback. Alberto Del Rio, a babyface. Yes, which is outstanding. I loved it, but then there was this Fox News blowback that claiming that the characters were demonizing the Tea Party. And in the middle of cutting a promo, Zeb Coulter breaks character on air and says that we're not really anti-immigration. We love everybody. That's not even Alberto Del Rio is not even his real name. This is his real name, and we're friends with him backstage. And you don't know the difference between reality and storyline, but... For me, I thought the momentum died after that. When you have, to, when you're getting out of us suspending our disbelief, and just because somebody on Fox News, you know, Glenn Beck or whoever it was, is calling you out on this, you feel like you have to totally course correct. And to me, part of wrestling is suspending disbelief, and that just totally took me out of it. And Jack Swagger would end up getting, uh, I think, a concussion or getting injured shortly thereafter this. And that was really kind of the end of his big momentum push. Was this all pre or post Cesaro joining them? Do you remember? I think this was before Cesaro joined. I think they kind of, I thought they kind of put Cesaro with them afterwards to kind of try to recoup something or kind of try to get some of the momentum back uh you know give zeb coulter another guy uh in his stable but i just remember this being so hot and then cold as ice yeah i mean it's unfortunate because that whole thing did end up getting over and for as much as vince McMahon loves headlines and he loves to be in the mainstream which that did i mean what other show, I mean, if if a show like Breaking Bad or uh, whatever other show, you know, Game of Thrones did something controversial on TV, they're not going to come out on the following week's episode and be like, we're really sorry that we did that. And we're not we're really, not really drug dealers. Here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No dragons were harmed in the making of this episode. It's all CGI, people. Yeah. But let's get, let's... Yeah. Let's get right back into the storyline and act like we didn't just, you know, break the fourth wall there. It was it was very strange and unfortunate for Jack Swagger. But luckily for him, here in 2020, he's in a uh, prominent faction on AEW. So, you know, you never know how the, uh, uh, the winds are going to carry your ship in the world of pro wrestling. And he still doesn't talk, so that's kind of cool. He doesn't. No, he doesn't. And I'm okay with that. Uh, Randy Orton wins the Money in the Bank in 2013. The Shield is continuing their dominant run. Uh, They're beating The Undertaker in tag matches, beating John Cena in tag matches, beating Team Hell No. And in May, at another show I was at here in St. Louis at Extreme Rules, they finally win some gold. Dean Ambrose becomes your U.S. champion, and Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns become your tag 
champs. Uh, Mid-year, we get Team Hell No kind of breaking off and doing the, the singles route. And this is where Daniel Bryan's rise to prominence the next year is really going to pick up steam. Uh, Bryan's determined to prove that he isn't the weak link. He goes on a big winning streak. And John Cena picks Daniel Bryan to be his SummerSlam opponent. Uh, what do you remember about the rise of Daniel Bryan at the end of 2013? I mean, it, it was incredible. And, and I think that one of the biggest things that I remember, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was, you know, the there was a, there was a unification match for the uh, the championships between John Cena and Randy Orton right yep. around that time. Yeah, in, de- um, in December. And, yeah. yep. So with that unification match, um, you know, they had that whole, all the former champions in the ring right. um, with uh, the John Cena and Randy Orton, and, you know, they're having this whole presentation. And this was in Seattle, and the whole time, the entire crowd is chanting, Daniel Bryan, and to the point where it can't be ignored, um, Mark Henry, in his famous salmon suit, by the way, <laughs> uh, raises the hand uh, of Daniel Bryan, so the crowd just cheers, trying to get them to shut up, uh, but it really ruined that entire moment for the WWE, <laughs> um, but it was a very fun moment, and um, you, you see guys like uh, uh, Shawn Michaels having fun during that, because I mean, you know that they're pushing the wrong guys and people yep. that just WWE has an agenda for. Oh yeah, it just it was was one of the first of many uh, pieces of evidence that Daniel that Daniel Bryan, the rise of Daniel Bryan, was not going to be denied, and the crowd was not going to allow Daniel Bryan to not get his moment and not be the champion that that they wanted. And to WWE's credit. They fought back against it, and they fought back against it, but they would eventually give in, and we would eventually get what we wanted at the the next year's WrestleMania, which we're going to talk about in just a second. But uh, Daniel Bryan wins the title from John Cena at SummerSlam, and although Triple H had supported him leading up to this, he attacks Daniel Bryan, allowing his former buddy Randy Orton to cash in his money in the bank, and that starts the whole B-plus player story with Daniel Bryan and leads to the formation of the authority for better or worse on WWE TV. Uh, Bryan briefly regains the title, but has the decision overturned because of a fast count. And then the title is vacant. And then that leads to uh, Randy Orton beating Daniel Bryan for the vacant title at hell in a cell in October. And then Randy Orton, as you alluded to a second ago, unifies the titles with John Cena at uh, the December pay-per-view Daniel Bryan has a little bit of a uh, goes off on a little bit of a tangent here. Curious to think uh, to hear what you think about the whole Daniel Bryan as part of the Wyatt family storyline at the end of 2013. Well, before I get into that, a couple of quick notes here that I want to make sure to mention to you. Uh, first off, that SummerSlam match with Daniel Bryan winning the title that was the debut of his uh, running knee. That's yes, when he won the. That's true. Uh, championship with that running knee so that that was a very cool moment earlier in the year and i want and i want to make sure to mention this because my favorite promo of that year and it it still ranks one of my favorite promos of that year uh was the mark henry retirement speech promo uh where 
him versus John Cena, you know, he came out to um, have that moment where he pretty much fooled everybody into retiring. You know, I mentioned that salmon-colored suit oh, man. Uh, earlier. And, I mean, I had, again, another moment, I had tears coming down my face when I saw that um, John Cena is there in the ring, and um, he... <laughs> You know, is making these jokes and is talking about his wife. He's telling the crowd, "No, not me, young dummy." And uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> then you know, John Cena hands him the belt and he tells him, "You know, no, I didn't earn this." But you know, John Cena gives him a hug and World Strongest Slam. Later, he tells him, "I got a lot left in the tank." And um, that, unfortunately, to me, that should have been the start of a good run for Mark Henry for the championship. Uh, maybe one of his last runs, but I feel like that was a missed opportunity for uh, Mark Henry. Yeah, a moment that um, that we won't that we won't forget. Put that up there in in classic promos and classic bamboozlements over the years. Yeah, I loved every yeah. minute of it. Uh, what about Daniel Bryan? With the, about with, the, yeah, the Wyatt family with the Wyatt family. Uh, so this was actually something that, to me, I actually loved, uh, and the reason being is because I, I feel like. This was, while all of, there was that groundswell of Daniel Bryan, and we saw it in Seattle, we saw it a couple of different moments where Daniel Bryan was starting to get the support, and we started realizing this was the time for Daniel Bryan. I feel like there was no other moment that really solidified it for me, other than that match between Bray Wyatt and Daniel Bryan, as part of the Wyatt family, he had that gray jumpsuit on, in a cage against the Usos. And that, to me, was the epitome of, of Daniel Bryan becoming the main event star when he turned on Bray Wyatt. And, and weirdly enough, um, Daniel Bryan had a concussion throughout that whole thing. Yeah. But he had the crowd in the palm of his hands in a, in a moment that, just thinking about it, gives me goosebumps to where he has that slow yes chant and the entire arena is doing that slow yes chant as he's building up towards that running knee. And, you know, again, turning on the Wyatt family, the crowd is just unglued. Everybody's out of their seat. He does it again at the top of the the cage, pretty much chanting, and, and the camera zooms out, and you can literally see every person doing it. Amazing, amazing moment that led, for me, to the solidifying of this guy is an A-plus player. Unfortunately, you mentioned the concussion earlier uh daniel bryan has has mentioned in interviews after that that he doesn't even remember doing he doesn't remember being at the top of the cage he doesn't remember doing the yes chant unfortunately this was the first of not well not the first this was another one of uh the things that started to pile up with daniel bryan as far as concussions go and as far as uh him having some nerve issues too he was losing some some feeling in his in his extremities and unfortunately this kind of planted the seeds for uh some things that were going to take place in 2014 after he would have the highlight of his career he would have one of the lowlights of his career uh when these uh injuries and these uh issues with the concussions and with the the brain trauma would start to pile up uh, but finishing up with t- 2013, uh, as far as NXT goes, Big E is carrying the title to May. NXT at this point is still on a WWE.com show. This is before the WWE Network. Uh, Bo Dallas would win the title in May and carry that title for nine mm-hmm. months. 
And then uh, we move into 2014, our last year on the show here. Thanks for sticking with me, Doug, for this long show. I really appreciate you staying up and uh, digging into uh, the 2010s with me. I really appreciate it. Hey, man, it's it's been a blast going through memory lane here with you. And like I mentioned, there's been so many, you know, for as many bad moments as, as WWE had in the beginning of the decade, there's been so many goosebump moments. You know, we talked about the Daniel Bryan moment there in the cage. Uh, we talked about that uh, Mark Henry promo, obviously. Um, going back down memory lane for CM Punk, it was, it was just incredible. And, um, you know, I mentioned it on, on our year end, but... His contributions to wrestling in, in the 2010s is, you know, can't be understated. Sure, and like I said uh, at the beginning of the show, it's it's kind of interesting to go back and say, man, there was a lot of cool stuff that they did, mixed in with, you know, the the Lana Rus, you know, Rusev or uh, Lashley, you know, trash that we're seeing on on Raw <laughs> each week. Uh, and I think just like a a microcosm of that is at the beginning of Raw this week they said Brock Lesnar is back and we'll also talk about the Lana Rusev uh, fallout from their wedding last week so you just have this like big pop yay Brock's back to oh we gotta do more of the the wedding stuff that's just that's wrestling in 2020 man Uh, but you know going back and uh, looking at some of the cool things that have happened over the last decade it kind of gives me hope that there could be cool things on the horizon in the future as well uh, i mean 20- you mentioned the uh, you, you mentioned everything as far as that wedding and monday night raw and everything you know uh as as you mentioned a couple times at stf underground I, I can't wait to to talk about that this week to be able to give my opinion and and everything for monday night raw as far as especially um, that big show return. I, I'm excited to be able to talk about that this week. <laughs> uh, 2014 Billboard Song of the Year, Happy by Pharrell Williams. I love it. Yeah, I mean, great song. Uh, that one was definitely one that I am happy about. It's very, very catchy. It's one that, uh, you know, whenever you hear, you have to, like, snap your fingers and do that weird head movement because it's just like a, it's a happy song. And uh, a happy movie won Oscar winner for Best Picture in 2014, 12 Years a Slave. That uh, that raunchous uh, comedy. Uh, again, this is the one. <laughs> and I feel like I'm just not w- uh, one to watch Oscar-based movies or whatever it is. You know, and um, there maybe I just like horrible movies for all I know. But this is yeah. one that. Uh, I just didn't see. No, and I don't. I can't imagine myself ever being in the mood to sit down and say, "Hey, you want to pop in Twelve Years a Slave?" I just, I, I don't know. It's <laughs> not my cup of tea. Uh, talk about. No, the I, have a, I have a friend that every single year uh, for the Oscars watches after after the Oscar winners are announced, yeah. he goes back and watches every Oscar win. Yeah, I can't do it, man. Uh, nope, I just nope. can't do it. Uh, New Japan in 2014. Uh, Russell Kingdom 8 takes place. Okada uh, defeats Naito to retain the heavyweight title. How's that for a little foreshadowing? We just had that match in 2020. I mean, clearly it, it worked back then and it continues to work now. And um, those guys, what, now six years ago, um, are, are main eventing and they're, they're still doing it today. Okada, obviously, I think he's only 33 years old. He's a a spring chicken, and, and at the time, 
um, what now 27 years old main eventing Wrestle Kingdom and that's the second time that he did it it's yeah. pretty incredible uh, Okada 32 years old with the neck of a 80 year old man after being uh, yeah. <laughs> that poison, poison Rana off the top rope that I think that uh, took place this past weekend I don't know how he's walking after that but I don't know uh, Tanahashi beat Nakamura to win the Intercontinental title, and the Bullet Club is still running wild in New Japan. Young Bucks are the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Champs. Gallows and Anderson are the Heavyweight Tag Champs. Prince Devitt is the Junior Heavyweight Champ, even though he loses it at Wrestle Kingdom. Uh, but there's going to be a shakeup in the Bullet Club in 2014. In April, Prince Devitt lo- loses a Loser Leaves Town match uh, to his former partner Taguchi. And he, there was some argument about the Young Bucks uh, interfering in the match. And the Young Bucks attack Prince Devitt out after the match. Devitt leaves the Bullet Club. He leaves New Japan. And he is uh, destined to end up in NXT in the very near future after that. But that same night, uh, we get a new leader of the Bullet Club as AJ Styles appears and attacks Okada who was the heavyweight champ, and Styles is the newest member slash leader of the Bullet Club. Uh, were you following a lot of the New Japan stuff when uh, Devitt was on his way out and AJ was on his way in? Not until a couple of years after I became privy to all of those things. Um, but, you know, taking a look at, at everything that happened, obviously, especially the uh, emergence of AJ Styles in New Japan, I mean, talk about making an impact unintended yeah uh talking about uh, another you know impact this was right after there was rumors that uh aj styles was going to resign with impact but again they didn't meet his contract demands and aj just kind of became um the free agent of uh, the world he was doing new japan stuff he was doing ring of honor he was doing indies he was kind of writing his own ticket and betting on himself, and that would end up leading to his uh, big run in WWE and probably making more money than he had ever made in his life. Uh, but the next month, after uh, joining New Japan, AJ would beat Okada for the heavyweight title. And then Bullet Club gets even stronger because in November, Kenny Omega comes over to New Japan, and Kenny Omega joins the Bullet Club. So now Bullet Club is kind of starting to kind of turn into the the uh, modern era Bullet Club that we uh, know and recognize with the the Bucks and Gallows and Anderson and Kenny Omega and AJ Styles. This is when I kind of started to to get become more privy to uh, what was going on in New Japan. Yeah, you know, we we had a lot more streaming privileges at the time. Um, New Japan World wasn't as you know, prevalent or easily accessible it is, as it is now. Um, but at the time, we were, we were finding different ways to be able to get our wrestling. And I think that um, at this time especially, uh, we were starting to be able to understand that there are options outside of the WWE. And, you know, I think the Bullet Club really made that a big thing. And the fact that they were starting to get their T-shirts into Hot Topic, mm-hmm. the fact that they were starting to... I mean... You mentioned AJ Styles before. AJ Styles really was the 
poster child for how to make it outside of the WWE. Yep. And then the Young Bucks took that and ran with it and made themselves famous and millionaires outside of the WWE um, with things like being the elite, with things like obviously their T-shirts. Um, and, and now they run a very successful T-shirt company uh, on uh, TNT every single week. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's... <laughs> I like that T-shirt company. That is, yeah, it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, but you know, we, we, as you mentioned, we start to see the emergence of what um, the the Bullet Club and, and eventually the Elite uh, became after this. Uh, we move on to TNA, a company that is uh, struggling a little bit here in 2014. We still got Magnus as the champ. A uh, company cannot come to terms with AJ Styles and AJ leaves as we mentioned a second ago to go do bigger and better things uh tna's trying some new things they're bringing in bobby lashley they give eric young a uh, run with the world title they bring in mvp as an authority figure uh they do a bound for glory in tokyo in in conjunction with the wrestle one promotion i think great muda was on that card but they're losing a lot of steam here in 2014 and by november the uh what would end it would be a killer blow for the company. Spike TV would end the relationship with TNA. TNA would never be on as prominent as a network as Spike TV. They ended up going to like Destination America. They ended and then they went to uh, I think Pop TV after that, and then it was Pursuit Network, and now they're having a little bit of a resurgence with Access TV, but they were never on as prominent as a network as as Spike TV. This just really seemed like a a big blow uh, to TNA in 2014. This was kind of their rock bottom, um, if you will, as far as needing to come to terms with what they were going to do with the future of the company. Uh, this is really where, I mean, I did not care about TNA at this point, uh, what they were doing, if they were a company. Um, part of me even, and, and this is bad to say, um, a, as far as wrestling goes, especially with how great it is these days, but part of me was just happy to see them go and just happy to just say, bye-bye, you guys need to go and leave because you guys are just nothing, and, and you guys are, are embarrassing to see. And not, yeah. not that I want to take pleasure in, in TNA leaving, but at the same time, um, with how mismanaged they were and how just, you know, it was it was just it was the opposite of what a pleasure to watch pro wrestling was. And I'll tell you what, I it, it pains me to say it, but I'm seeing the same things from TNA in 2014. I'm seeing the same things from Ring of Honor in 2020. You know, you hear about all the, the backstage things that were coming out from when uh, the Joey Mercury's been uh, unleashing on everybody from his time in the company. Uh, the fact that they're, they don't have enough money to pay uh, somebody like Kelly Klein, who's like one of the few uh, female stars that they have. And, you know, she's making well below, you know, starting salary for, you know, a first year public school teacher. Uh, it's it's really crazy the fact that the the parallels that we're seeing from 2014 and TNA is on the way down. Ring of Honor is on the way up. 2020, Ring of Honor is on the way down. Impacts 
having a bit of a resurgence here. So wrestling, uh, the wrestling world is a weird place, uh, Doug. It's uh, you never know uh, what's going to happen, and maybe the fact that TNA is, or Impact's having a resurgence in in 2020, maybe that gives hope that you know Ring of Honor can can right the ship in the in the next couple years, but. I don't know, man. Just things aren't looking too uh, too great here as we head into the next decade. Everything is pretty cyclical, obviously. And right now in the U.S., the one and two are clearly uh, WWE and AEW. Um, but Impact and Ring of Honor really need to um, have better identities and better uh, access to them because again coming soon New Japan is making uh, 2020 their year to really enter the uh, the uh, Americas and if they end up teaming with uh, with AEW those other companies are going to be in trouble. Now was that a pun that you just made there that uh, Ring of Honor and Impact need to have better access because <laughs> uh, it, I mean. Pun unintended. There. Pun unintended. Okay, I thought I thought you were trying to be funny here, and and that's not allowed on this show. Uh, you know, we don't have any fun <laughs> at all. Uh, Ring of Honor, like we said in yeah, 2014. Jason is your uh, funny guy. Right? <laughs> uh, Adam Cole holds the title until June before he loses it to uh, another guy who's kind of having a, a bit of a career resurgence in 2020. Uh, Michael Elgin, somebody that you're very familiar with. You've had on uh, STF Underground, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, now I followed Michael Elgin for several years, and, and I think that uh, 2014 was the time that he started becoming prominent for me as far as following his career. Uh, I mean, that was a really good year, obviously, for him. And, and as you mentioned, um, he's had a little bit of a downturn due to some outside of the wrestling world drama uh, in, I believe, 2017. But uh, thankfully, he's making a comeback and. No, the the guy uh, definitely deserves it. He's he's a monster and a star. Yeah, some of the stuff he's doing in Impact right now is just awesome. Uh, the stuff that he did with uh, Brian Cage, uh, the matches matches that he had with Marafuji, just hard hitting stuff. I I'm not a big fan of the the strong style as it pertains to you know guys getting dropped on their head and stuff like that. But Michael Elgin's one of those guys that can make things look strong, but also but do it in a safe way. If that if that makes sense, he seems like he does a really good job of like protecting guys in the ring, but still making things look stiff. And that's something that I really really dig about his uh, style in the ring. You know, he he's a pretty renowned teacher when it comes to wrestling, and he was running Glory Pro down by you for quite a bit mm-hmm. of time as well. Um, so he, he definitely knows how to book, have matches, tell stories. I've seen him in um, phenomenal matches with up-and-comers like his former student, uh, Myron Reed. And, and mm-hmm. um, you know, th- those those kind of things, I mean, he definitely makes, a, a, an again, no pun intended here, but, a, but an impact uh, as far as not just being in ring for himself but being able to teach other guys and i've seen it up close and personal teaching other guys how to become become better wrestlers okay and that's the last pun you get for the show you don't you don't get any more no more <laughs> no more access no that's more impact good. none of none of that garbage uh ring of honor really begins a really fruitful relationship with new japan they sh- start sharing a lot of talent 
this is where we start seeing like the Young Bucks, you know, come over and they actually become Ring of Honor tag champs. We see AJ Styles coming over from New Japan. Uh, I put in the notes that this was really good for them, and it really became good for them years later too, when the Bullet Club was there and you know Cody was there and. But I also put that it kind of became a blessing and a curse because it seemed to me like Ring of Honor about two years ago relied so much on the Bullet Club that when the Bullet Club was gone, they kind of had an oh shit moment where they didn't know what to do. And I think they're still recovering from that. Uh, am I crazy in saying that or do you, do I, is there some uh, uh, fact in that uh, statement? No, I, I completely agree with that. And I mentioned it earlier as far as um, with their reliance on the Bullet Club. It, it, it's when Cody and the Young Bucks and all these other guys left that, you know, you kind of took a look at the uh, Ring of Honor, you know, uh, the, the their roster and said, who am I tuning in for here? Mm-hmm. Um, am I tuning in for Matt Taven, Matt Taven who is... Now the champ, am I, am I tuning in for uh, Jay Lethal, who I love, but is past his prime? Am I tuning in for uh, the Briscoes, who are just over the hill, too, and, and, and not great? I mean, there's not a lot of guys that really made me watch Ring of Honor anymore beyond um, what we were seeing with, with the Bullet Club. Uh, I mean... In I believe it was 2017, maybe even 2018, when when the Bullet Club was really the part of every single storyline when it comes to Ring of Honor and so prevalent. You saw um, some of the best matches taking place. I mean, they were part of. Uh, I believe it was, um, if I can remember correctly, it was a big pay per view that uh, WWE or that Ring of Honor had. I, I want to say in 2017 or 2018 at the same time as uh, NXT TakeOver um, during WrestleMania time that just about every single member uh, of the Bullet Club was involved in a title match. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see that, and then all of these guys leave. I mean, what do you really do? You, you know, you, you, you have trouble rebuilding, and this is the first time the Ring of Honor really ran into that in a very, very, very long time. Absolutely. Uh, Kevin Steen loses uh, title matches to Adam Cole, loses uh, interpromotional matches to Nakamura, and uh, Kevin Steen leaves in August for WWE. And uh, we'll talk about uh, him in just a second because it wouldn't be very long that he would make uh, himself uh, known in a big way on NXT. And uh, just Ring of Honor, man, at this point, ridiculous amount of talent. In my opinion, they were the number two company uh, in the uh, country. But as we fast forward to 2020, they are on the downturn. And uh, let's finish out 2014 talking some WWE. Big moment in 2014. WWE Network launches in February. Uh, Were you a uh, subscriber from day one to the WWE Network? Day one-ish. No, um, (laughs) day day one, yeah. Uh, I subscribed, I think, at at 9 a.m. that that, uh, morning and have never looked back. I think I canceled uh, once because of some uh, horrible things that happened and canceled for like a month or two because of just, I, I want to say it was uh, when Roman Reigns beat The Undertaker or something dumb, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, otherwise, I've uh, been a subscriber since day one. Um, I, I never really experienced any negatives when it, when it came to the network. I know initially, like, 
people were talking about crashes and things uh-huh. like that. And I think that the worst came during pay-per-views or times that there were high streaming that yeah. um, it would uh, pause on me quite a bit. I think that the most prevalent thing that happened, and, and I don't think it was even in 2014, uh, it was during an Undertaker return when the Undertaker rose up out of the ring um, and the the stream paused on me right before he came out and, and that surprise came out um, and, and I want to say it was during uh, a Brock Lesnar match when uh, the Undertaker came out and re-challenged Brock Lesnar um, anyway the, the the stream paused right before it happened and restarted and Undertaker was in the ring and me and everybody <laughs> in my house was like ah what he's magic happened? he's magic <laughs> he just re- he just appeared out of nowhere it's like no just the, the stream buffered a little too much uh, but Pretty I mean much. WWE Network man this is a a game changer for the future of of professional wrestling I don't know. I just can't even imagine uh, a world without the WWE Network. After living so many years and watching wrestling without it, now that we've had it for not even quite six years, I guess February will be the six-year anniversary, I can't even imagine not having access to all this. What did we ever do before we had the WWE Network, Doug? I mean, I I will tell you that my favorite thing to ever come out of the WWE Network was launched in its initial year because I feel like they haven't had too much in original programming since. Um, but Legends House. Oh, man. With, you know, guys like Roddy Piper with yes. Mean Gene. Uh, with, uh, I mean, so many different guys. I mean, it was just incredible. That was an amazing, amazing show. I want to see it. I, I really wish they would do another season of that. It doesn't seem like it'd be that hard to produce. Just get a bun- get a bun- you know, get the Honky Tonk Man and... and- in the house with Greg, the Hammer Valentine, and get Brutus Beefcake in there, and just you know, let him go on some excursions. It'd be fun. Yeah, it'd be hilarious. I would, I would love to see something like that. Um, and, and and then eventually, you know, we saw um, things like Swerved, which which was a really good show. Uh, we saw uh, and continue to see things like um, Table for Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the network continues to evolve, there's rumors, of course, of different tiers coming out for uh, better overall access. Even certain things that I've seen rumors to be having, um, if you're paying the highest tier, you get better ticket initial access to different shows. So yeah. uh, we'll continue to see different evolutions of, of the network. Um, the most recent one, I'm not that big of a fan of, but you know, that's beside the point. Gotcha. Uh talking about the royal rumble in 2014 batista returns to win the royal rumble uh he had uh, come out a few weeks before and said that he was going to enter so it wasn't really a surprise we knew that he was going to be there uh daniel bryan lost the match to bray wyatt earlier in the night but the philly crowd still wanted bryan to come out and win that rumble and they were not having anybody but daniel bryan uh daniel bryan would not even enter the royal rumble they thought maybe he'd come out at 30 Nope, it was Rey Mysterio, and he got heavily booed out of the building just because he wasn't Daniel Bryan. Uh, the cra- This is when a weird thing happened. The crowd really got behind Roman Reigns, who was very green at the time as uh, a member of the Shield. But when it came down to the possibility of Roman Reigns winning, who had 12 eliminations that year, 
they really that Philly crowd really wanted Roman to to win, which is so weird because the next year when Roman would win, they'd boo him out of the building. <laughs> Wrestling fans are well, the worst, know, I Doug. It, <laughs> I, I mentioned it earlier. I mean that the following year was that moment when the crowd was just heavily chanting for Rusev yes. uh, when Roman Reigns was you know in the final two with him. But uh-huh. yeah, I mean that that moment with. Uh, Batista, and I mean, I don't know what the WWE was expecting. You have this guy that is universally cheered in Daniel Bryan, um, Lou, for one, losing his match against Bray Wyatt, and you yeah. have to wonder um, what was going to happen if the if if the universe didn't pretty much reject everything that was happening after Daniel Bryan lost to Bray Wyatt. I mean, where was his path after that? You really have to wonder where he was going to be, um, and. and you also have to wonder how they don't put him as number 30. If he doesn't win the Royal Rumble, a little bit less acceptable, but at least put him in there. Um, and then it just didn't happen. So that sets up Batista versus Randy Orton at WrestleMania, and the crowd craps all over it. We finally get to March 10th, though, and that famous Occupy Raw episode, which was a... A play on words from the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement that was going on at the time. And Daniel Bryan is joined in the ring by a couple dozen fans. The ring was packed with, with Daniel Bryan fans all wearing his gear. And he was demanding a match at WrestleMania. And that the uh, show would not go on until he got what he wanted. And Triple H finally agrees to put Daniel Bryan in the main event at WrestleMania. If Daniel Bryan can beat Triple H that same night. And then it would eventually become where whoever won that match, even if Triple H would have won that match at WrestleMania, he would go on to the main event and make it a a triple threat match. But Bryan beats Triple H and then taps out Batista for that crazy moment down at the Silver Dome in New Orleans. we know it's we know it's the Superdome. It's it's uh, Mr. Hogan that uh, is living it at WrestleMania three, but that moment, man, just a lot of people say that that's their favorite WrestleMania that they've ever seen, just because of the two matches that Daniel Bryan had and the way that that show ended with Daniel Bryan holding up both those titles. Uh, you know, the big gold belt and also the WWE title. Man, what a moment uh, at WrestleMania in 2014. Something that we're never going to forget. Yeah, I mean, that WrestleMania had so many memorable moments. And, uh, and the fact of the matter is that um, WWE now is a company of moments. And from the, um, the Rock Austin Hogan to start off that show to... Uh, Brock Lesnar defeating The Undertaker and ending his undefeated streak at WrestleMania um, to Daniel Bryan, obviously, uh, with the miracle on Bourbon Street winning the uh, WWE World Heavyweight Championship, uh, which was obviously just an incredible moment. I, I feel like the the only thing that took away from that Daniel Bryan moment, Dan- Daniel Bryan moment for me, uh, was the fact that Everybody that was at my house at the time it, it was still in shock from that Undertaker moment um, to really fully invest in the Daniel Bryan yeah. win because it was just still such a jaw-dropping moment that happened earlier in the night. And I don't know why I didn't 
have that in my in my notes here. I guess by the time I got to 2014, I was just uh, you know running on fumes here. But we got to talk about uh, Undertaker Brock Lesnar at uh, WrestleMania in 2014. The the betting odds going into that match were so heavily on the Undertaker. Nobody thought that Brock Lesnar was going to, well, at least not me. I, nobody that I talked to thought that Brock Lesnar had any chance of winning that match. And then when it finally happened, you we've got, you know, memes and gifts for the for eternity uh, of fans shocked in the crowd. Yeah, that guy right there, very good. Uh, for those for those of you that are watching on uh, Patreon, that get the uh, the live feed here <laughs> of uh, the video feed here of, of us with the non-existent video feed. Uh, God, man, t- talk about your feelings when you saw uh, the Undertaker lose to Brock Lesnar. I just the third F five came, and I still didn't think it was going to be enough. But then when the ref counted three, I had the the same feeling that Paul Heyman had at ringside, just shock and awe. Well, you know, the thing is, is you mentioned the betting odds being so high on The Undertaker, and part of the reason is, is because, really, this match was one of the most poorly booked and built-up matches for The Undertaker going into WrestleMania. I don't think that they had even, like, a physical altercation or a meeting face-to-face until the week right before WrestleMania, Um, and, and the two really just didn't you know, see each other at all. Um, so, so you didn't really have a lot of excitement or build or thought that Brock Lesnar was really going to win. Um, and I think that the mood in the, you know, I was mentioning in my house was jaw drop, but before that was kind of the mood that was happening inside of the arena. You kind of just see people chit chatting. You see people like paying attention, but not really paying attention because, you know, the, the thought is, it's a foregone conclusion. You know, Undertaker wins, he's going to kick out of everything, and he's going to win, you know? So yep. you're, you're kind of watching, you're kind of not, you know, who's going to win, whatever. And that, that was kind of the thing. And then that three count happens, and you think, what just happened? <laughs> Jaw dropped, pin, pin dropped. Um, you know, my, my co-host, Fox and Ryan, was in the arena, and he said he could hear a pin drop in the arena. And wow. especially... You know, the, the the whole thing is, the first thought is, did the ref accidentally count to three? Was there a mistake? Are you going to see some type of, like, his shoulder wasn't really down, so the ref is going to call it back? And then you see the graphic, 21 and 1, uh-huh. uh, on the top of the screen. And then you're like, what just happened? Yeah. And you, again, you see the shock all, all in the crowd, and it was just... A surreal, surreal moment. Looking back on it, did Brock Lesnar need that win in order to become as big as he is right now? Or, in hindsight, should we have just kept the streak alive? I think that if Triple H wasn't going to defeat him if Shawn Michaels wasn't going to defeat him and if CM Punk wasn't going to defeat him that you just keep the streak alive I I think that there would have been better people to take that from The Undertaker Um, and and as far as already developed people again it should have been one of those three I just mentioned as far as future people that would have needed to be developed moving forward 
I would have loved to see a Bray Wyatt passing of the torch um, and, and him defeating The Undertaker as, you know, this new face of fear as he became to be known later on versus Brock Lesnar, who was already established. He had already uh, annihilated um, the uh, uh, John Cena uh, with all with that whole suplex city kind of thing. You know, you had already seen that kind of thing. Um and Brock Lesnar was already dominant, so he didn't really need it, but it definitely adds to his lore, so to speak. It definitely adds to the legend um, that is Brock Lesnar, and um, a lot of people don't appreciate Brock because he's not on TV now, but he will go down as maybe the most winningest champion in the history of all of professional wrestling. Uh, wrapping up 2014 here with Dougie Wrestling on the Rhino Wrestling Review. Talking about WWE fallout from uh, WrestleMania. Uh, Evolution actually reforms uh, to take out Daniel Bryan post-WrestleMania. And this is where the Shield would turn babyface and save Daniel Bryan. Uh, Bryan goes on and feuds with Kane and defends his title at Extreme Rules. But this is when things start getting bad for Daniel, and he begins losing feeling in his right hand due to some nerve damage in his neck. Uh, he's forced to relinquish the title in June after it appears that he is not going to have a very quick recovery. And uh, Cena would win the, the vacant title, but for Daniel Bryan, he has a surgery uh, that does not fix the issues. A lot of doctors are saying that he needs a second surgery. Some are saying that he needs to retire. He ends up going to Denver and does this muscle activation program to avoid surgery, which helps him get his feeling back in his right arm. He'd come back as a guest GM in November, but he doesn't return to the ring until January. So we we get about six months with no Daniel Bryan. He relinquishes the title without, without having actually lost it. But even when he comes back in in January, and I know we're getting into 2015 here, he's never the same Daniel Bryan. He kind of has a little bit of a run where he comes back and he, he wins the Intercontinental title at Mania, but then the, the nerve issues and everything catch up with him, and he eventually has to retire, and we don't see Daniel Bryan for a couple of years. So it was this high that we got from WrestleMania. He has one title defense, and then he's gone. It was... Uh, really the you know the classic roller coaster uh ride that we see so often in pro wrestling wasn't it i mean it was a really just sad time for daniel bryan uh, not just the fact that um a child um known as Connor maholic um, or known as kind of the crusher died on the way to wrestlemania that year um and was just a, a a child that Daniel Bryan had gotten close to. We now known the know the benefit as Connor's cure. Um, that was something that uh, was just a sad moment. And, and Daniel Bryan went on this honeymoon with his uh, after wife. You know, got they got married, and um, while they're on their honeymoon, Daniel Bryan finds out that his father passed away, um, and. Then shortly thereafter, he's put into this lackluster feud with Kane, which for I don't know why they put him Kane of all people. Uh, I, I definitely remember the um, the pile driver that happened on the stairs, uh, which is said to kind of be the the last thing that happened that really um, 
reactivated everything for Daniel Bryan as far as the neck injury and head injury. Uh, and then from there, he was gone for several weeks and then event- eventually, as we, you mentioned, had to relinquish the title. So um, that that whole thing was just a huge downturn to him for him that it ended up to his retirement. Um, gladly, you know, we, we see we see him come back and have happy times now. But, man, those were some very bad times, especially for the amount of momentum and surge and energy and everything else that was behind him for I mean, really, almost two years. So happy that Dan O'Brien's healthy and, and well here in, in 2020, and that makes it a little less sad when we're looking back on it in 2014 that he was able to have this comeback and have this uh, career resurgence and be, like I said, 100% healthy in 2020. But 2014 was the, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows for Daniel Bryan. But uh, somebody who is going to uh, power up here in 2014 is Seth Rollins because The Shield takes out Evolution at Payback in June. But the next night, Triple H unveils his Plan B, and that's Seth Rollins turning on The Shield and joining the Authority. Seth Rollins would win the money in the bank. He would take the head of the Authority position away from Randy Orton. He would captain Team Authority at Survivor Series. This was the big push that uh, Seth Rollins uh, was getting in the shield and or away from the shield, I should say. Was Seth Rollins the guy that you kind of had earmarked to be the breakout, the first breakout in the shield, or was it somebody else out of the trio? Well, so a couple of interesting notes from that. I mean, that, that match with um, the shield versus evolution at payback was just awesome. And that, Next night that you mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the Triple H unveiled his plan B. That was also the um, Batista leaving and quitting once again yes. on that same episode, which which ended up making, you know, Seth Rollins taking that place uh, into what the authority would be. Um, as far as did I have Seth Rollins being in that role, I think that nearly everybody... Uh, did not have Seth Rollins being that heel turn guy and that everybody thought it was going to be Dean Ambrose just yeah. because of his demeanor, just because of the the way that he came off as more of a psychopath. And and unfortunately for Dean Ambrose, that really led to him being the slapstick character as a babyface, which never really fit him. Um, and it, he would have, he definitely would have benefited the most having that heel turn from there and or eventually being a heel. Um, but, I mean, obviously we, the history is written as, as Seth Rollins um, became that heel and joined the authority. Um, Dean Ambrose never would have been good in an authority role, so to speak. Um, but, you know, it, it definitely would have saved him quite a bit more into his love of his character if he did turn heel right around that time. So uh, we talked about that Team Authority at Survivor Series, and this is where Sting would make his WWE debut at Survivor Series here in St. Louis, helping Team Cena win, and Dolph Ziggler was actually the only survivor of Team Cena. Actually had a nice little run there uh, at the end to help his team win. And uh, later on in the year, John Cena would get destroyed by Brock Lesnar at SummerSlam, and Lesnar would carry that title all the way to WrestleMania. So that was the uh, the year in uh, 2014 for WWE. A couple quick notes about NXT. Uh, the first NXT 
it was called uh, NXT Arrival before it was called NXT TakeOver takes place in February. That was the first live event on the WWE Network. That's where Neville beat Bo Dallas in a ladder match for the title. Uh, the second, Great match. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The second uh, live NXT event was in May. Uh, that was the f- called actually called TakeOver. Uh, the third one would come in December, and that was called Takeover Our Evolution, and that's where Sami Zayn would win a title versus career match against Neville. Another great match for uh, for Neville, and especially for Sami Zayn, who had so many of those on NXT. Kevin Owens would also debut in the opening match of that card as a babyface, got a big babyface reaction, and he would come out and celebrate with his old friend Sami Zayn after you know being friends for so many years it was documented uh they even showed like old pictures of the two of them together from their indie days and their ring of honor days and then kevin owens would turn the heel on Sami Zayn and power bomb him on the ring apron by the end of the show kevin owens is the biggest heel in nxt i mean that to me was just an amazing moment and kevin owens did it um, with a broken nose after uh, losing to um, Juice Robinson earlier in the night, formerly known as yes. uh, you'll have to remind me. With, he was um, like the plant loving guy, was, the 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 hippie guy, yeah, CJ like, Parker. CJ Parker. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah CJ Parker. Um, and so he lost to him in, in the opening match of that night, which was uh, a very interesting moment. For again, uh, CJ Parker ended up breaking Kevin Owens' nose. Uh, earlier in, in the night, but um, seeing that match or that moment happen with uh, Kevin O bombing Sami Zayn in uh, uh, on the apron was just such a monument um, that that I loved seeing and really started the dominance of what uh, Kevin Owens making him scary. Um, that's actually the, the Kevin Owens that I prefer when it comes to. Uh, you know the way that Kevin Owens is, just because I I liked him significantly as that almost like a Brock Lesnar, unstoppable, scary, you don't mess with this guy kind of uh, Kevin Owens. So that is the first five years of the decade that we uh, have covered for you in great detail. Uh, Doug, tell the uh, listeners uh, how they can follow you on social media and how they can uh, count and when they can uh, catch STF Underground each week. So my on Twitter, you can follow me uh, at Doug E Wrestling, Doug the letter E Wrestling. Uh, And you can catch me on STF Underground every single week. We drop every single Friday uh, for your wrestling weekend consumption. Uh, and we would drop on ProWrestling.com in addition to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. And if you want to follow the podcast, uh, you can follow STF Underground on Facebook, STF Underground Podcast, and also on Twitter and Instagram at STF Underground. And uh, what are you doing on ProWrestling.com these days as far as written work? Well, I do every single week the coverage for all elite wrestling. I have graduated uh, from covering Monday Night Raw. Thank um, you know, God. I, I, covered, I, <laughs> I covered Monday Night Raw for the better part of, I think, three years uh, doing live coverage for Raw. And once all elite wrestling was coming out, 
Um, I could not sit through three hours of Raw anymore. So, um, and, and forcibly every single week it, it, as a job. So, um, thankfully, the two hours of All Elite Wrestling just rushes by for me. I also do a lot of uh, indie promotion coverage when it comes to, uh, especially in the Chicagoland area. Uh, and you also may have seen a lot of my coverage when it comes to live event All Elite Wrestling, as I have been to a lot of their live pay-per-view shows, uh, including a lot of their stuff that happened over the last year, like their Jacksonville Rally, Double or Nothing. A lot of fun stuff last year in 2019. My first AEW show is coming up. I will see you in Chicago next month. You and me, brother. We're going to be there. My first AEW live show. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be fantastic. And we it's coupled with a C2E2 weekend. It's going to be a lot of fun, too. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very, very excited. Looking forward to it, man. Hey, thanks for uh, staying up late. Thanks for uh, running the marathon with me here and covering uh, 2010 to 2014. Uh, Love you, brother. Appreciate it. Hey, man. Always a pleasure. And there you go, folks. 2010 to 2014 review complete. Big thanks to Doug E. Wrestling for the time commitment and for... Uh, all the insight that he gave us on this episode of the Rhino Wrestling Review. Uh, make sure to check out Doug on the STF Underground podcast and all his written works on ProWrestling.com. You can follow him at Doug E. Wrestling on Twitter. You can follow their show at STF Underground on Twitter. And you can listen to the show on ProWrestling.com or any podcast platform. Uh, thanks, everybody, for downloading, listening, and subscribing. We will be back next time with 2015 to 2019 as we wrap up the last decade in the world of pro wrestling. Until then, I'm Dan Rhino. Thanks to ProWrestling.com. This has been the Rhino Wrestling Review. Don't kick out of each other's finishers. See ya!